Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of MG Rants. It feels good to say that, Ross. It's been a while. Yeah, I had to say it last week. It felt weird. Yeah, I listened to the... I only got through, like, the first half of the episode. I haven't had, you know, another hour to sit down where... I don't... I, I try not to break stuff up like that. You know, where I want to sit down and be like, I need two hours to, like, listen to the whole thing. Because, like, I... Not saying you can't listen to it, uh, you know, broken up in some way. But I like to hear the full scope of things. You know, if I'm going to listen to an episode of a podcast, I want to hear the entire thing together if I can. Because sometimes there's, like, callbacks to beginning of episodes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you, you miss stuff by breaking it up. Uh, speaking of breaking it up, uh, my voice is somewhat um, okay today. Uh, last night, I had a conversation with someone. Um, so we're this is, what, three, 4 p.m. your time on a Friday. Last night being Thursday night was the first time that I spoke, like actually spoke besides a few words here or there since Sunday night Um, because of uh, I didn't get fully diagnosed. I did talk to Tark Patel quite a bit, who has become my doctor, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but he was like, you know, I was at the national championships for flesh and blood over the weekend in between winning national championships. Right. Medical doctor. Yeah. In between. Yeah. During his spare time when he's not busy destroying every flesh and blood tournament that he plays in uh, real quick. uh, Yeah. He won the national championship. So good on Tark Patel. He has played in three flesh and blood tournaments. Right. And he only learned to play the game like a month before the first tournament. And so it's like a GP, a GP and the nationals. His results are ninth, second, and first. That's pretty good. He also came up with a deck that destroyed the metagame and was like 40% of the field, which is unreal in that game. Like the last time a card, I mean, a deck was even close to this, they had multiple bannings. <laughs> and the problem is it's like really hard to do that against what he did. So um, anyway, just uh, kind of, you know, exploiting what's been going on, my voice uh for another way to put it like my vocal cords just did not want to cooperate i had to push through the event that weekend if if you were a person who listened to it or watched it you can tell that i do not sound the same there's like rounds where i I sound like i ran a mile for the entire round uh there's rounds where like i try to um project or insert some form of like emotion into my voice and that's not easy i still can't do it i can still feel it um, if you hear me randomly go quiet for a second on the cast today, it's probably because I'm coughing. Uh, it's gone way, way down, but it was really bad for the last week. Uh, my voice has been horrible. Um, Tark thinks I either strained a vocal cord, had bronchitis, or something along the amalgam Some of Some combination students. thereof, yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, it was not COVID. That was the, that's the thing I was slightly worried about. Yeah. And Any, anytime but, I sneeze or cough yeah. now, I, the back of my head is like, you're, oh no, this like, is it. You're like Rona, is that you? <laughs> you know, yeah. So this is how it. This is how it ends. You know, or whatever. Because um, like there was the worry about that. Because you know I was in public. Obviously I was masked and you know being careful as possible. I was trying to stay away from people, but I can't. You know I was doing a job, and then I informed everyone. We had a discussion. They're like, you know, what are your symptoms? And I explained what was going on. You know, Tart came over, like felt my neck, and was talking to me, and he was just like. So is it like a localized like pain right here? And I'm like, yeah. And like, he's like, when does it get worse and better? And like, we talked it all out. And he's like, all right, these, this is, this is a symptom more towards like some kind of either like infection or strain than it is something that is like a side effect of the coronavirus, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So he's like, he felt pretty confident in the fact that I did not have it, you know, and the fact that he was, he was willing to be around me without a mask on. He was like that confident, you know, kind of thing. So I was like, all right, if you're, if you feel that way, <laughs> I, I, I feel better, you know, yeah. kind of thing. 
because obviously, you know, uh, safety comes first, <clears throat> then safety for other people. I think my safety came third. It was safety for other people, the job, and then my own personal like feeling. But uh, yeah, I got really bad Sunday into Monday. Like I uh, had to speak for like a moment on like Tuesday and my voice sounded like it was so weak. It was so pitiful. It was like so weak and like I just couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like physically, I sounded like I was hitting puberty. You know, it had like the weird, the weird inflection yeah, sort of cracking. Yeah, it was so bad and stuff. And so this show will be by far the most speaking I've done uh, since then. <clears throat> so you may hear me do that a lot. Sorry. Uh, I apologize to everybody at home. I'm going to try to get through this as much as I possibly can. Um, I know that you were doing some yelling last night. <laughs> uh, I saw a lot of it on Twitter about a Utah Jazz game. I normally don't have to switch to gin while watching basketball. Normally just a couple beers and I'm good. How many gin did we have last night? I only, I only had one. Okay. Um, because I can usually tell when you're drinking beer versus liquor, by the way. But anyway, continue. It's not ex- 100% explainable either. The, non- the nonsense happened towards the end of the game. So, you know, if it happened, you know, the first half let's might get have the been TL, Let's get the TLDR version. Okay. So the, the Jazz were not playing well in this game to begin with, and they were losing at home to a team they should beat, the Indiana Pacers. Um, and on top of that, the game was very physical, and the refs did not do a good job of containing the frustrations of players on both sides, really. Now, obviously, I'm biased, and I thought that there was a lot more physicality allowed on one side of the court than the other. In particular, I thought... Um, you know, one of the big differences in the game is, is Indiana dominated the uh, the boards, rebounding, and which is strange because Utah is normally an elite rebounding team with Rudy and Hassan Whiteside as his backup uh, that they they have been for several years in a row. But in this game, Indiana is you know, just destroying them on the glass. And in particular, I thought there were just a lot of forearms to Rudy's back on every single rebound, basically. And to a certain extent, that is generally allowed. It, like you, you can sort of give them a little push. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. It's sort of about there's a just a line of like how blatant you can be. And I thought Indiana had crossed that line many times. And uh, at this point, there's about four minutes left in the game. Uh, Utah's down ten, I think. It's something close to that, but they're down about ten. So you know, it, it's unlikely that they're going to come back and win at this point. And Rudy goes up for a layup. And Miles Turner, who's Indiana center, blocks the ball. But it looks to me like in doing so, like he got the leverage to block it by uh, putting his arm in Rudy's back again. And you know, Rudy obviously wanted the foul call. He's sort of off balance due to the shove and stumbles a little bit. As he's stumbling, he does something that is also pretty common on the basketball court in the NBA is he grabs Miles Turner's jersey. One, to try to stabilize himself, and two, to also prevent Turner from running the floor so it's not a five-on-four going the other way. Um, Now, this should generally be a foul. This was also not called, even though Turner got dragged to the floor. Uh, And Rudy admitted that this was a foul in his post-game interview. Uh, But this is something that that happens pretty frequently. And, uh, you know, Rudy gets up and starts running down the court, and Turner gets up and just shoves him. You know, puts a shoulder into into him. Not a big shove. Certainly nothing close to what Jokic did to Markeith Morris the other day. Um, 
but you know, it gives him a shove. And, and this is the first real like non basketball play. That was really entertaining, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that this is the first real non basketball play. Rudy takes umbrage with it, turns towards him, and you know they start a bit of a scuffle. And Rudy just sort of clenches him, and they end up just in a in an awkward looking bear hug on the court. Uh, and you know security runs on the court, coaches run on the court, and all the players run run out. And there's a big kerfuffle, as uh, Andy Larson likes to say. He's the jazz beat reporter uh, for the Salt Lake City Tribune. Uh, he likes the word kerfuffle. And, um, you know, they, you know, separate everyone. And then the referees go to the, the instant replay to see what infractions are going to get levied. And it ends with Turner and Gobert getting ejected. And then also Joe Ingles and Donovan Mitchell getting ejected. So there were four ejections on what was not a particularly major incident and three of them on Utah's side, even though like Utah was not the side that instigated this. Um, now, like the odds that Utah is coming back, uh, you know, are low and Rudy and Turner were going to get ejected regardless. So the odds that they're coming back without Rudy in the game, even lower. So I'm not saying that like this affected the outcome of the game, but this is like the... Uh, I think we're up to like five or six ejections now for Utah in, you know, 12 games. And it's just getting ridiculous because the way that they're the way that the refs are refing games this year is very different than they have in years past. They're allowing a lot more contact on the defensive end. And they're, they're basically not giving the, the good thing is they're not giving a lot of the sort of foul calls when the offensive player initiates the contact. But as a consequence, they're also just letting a lot of contact go that really should be a foul. And it, it, you know, it happens on both sides in a lot of games and you end up with every single person on the floor frustrated, you know, and r- right after this whole shit with, with the three ejections, they just gave us on white side, a technical for literally nothing. Like I've, I've never seen a softer technical in my entire life. And uh, th- there were three technicals, obviously on Utah's side with the ejections, one on, on Indiana side. So they got a million free throws out of it. The entire thing was just complete nonsense. And it, it shows how, I, I don't think the philosophy of how they're uh, adjudicating situations like this makes any sense. It's very similar to the bullshit that would go on in, you know, grade school whenever there is a fight when they were just equally punish both parties. And that's just not how this should work. <laughs> there needs to be some you can't just tell people that the uh, that, you know, whenever a fight happens, both and it, like, both parties are equally at fault every time. It's just a cop-out horseshit answer that takes the onus away from you as an adjudicator to actually, like, make a judgment as to what happened. Now, obviously, like, Indiana fans are going to say that Rudy instigated it by pulling uh, Turner to the ground after a clean block. You know, there's bias on both sides here. They're wrong, but, you know, we don't have to get into that part of it. But my point is, and the, the thing that I'm really upset about is, we seem to have we seem to have tried to get rid of a problem in the NBA, and that was offensive players hunting fouls because foul shots are among the most efficient in the game, and you know it, it was easy to do. And we've tried to get rid of this problem, but we've just introduced another one where you're now just you're seeing a lot more of these frustrations. I think on the court, um, you know, we saw it happen with Markeith Morris and, and Nikola Jokic, and like. The sh- shit like that that happens, especially towards the end of the game, it's it's not just something that comes up out of nowhere. That's stuff that is happening over the course of the game with players jawing back and forth down the court, which you know is pretty normal. But 
you, as referees, you have to be able to monitor those situations and keep tempers down and not let things get out of hand. And the refs let that game get out of hand. And they let it get out of hand and then unequally punished the the two parties when it was really their fault. So, and, you know, the, the, the reason that Joe Ingles got ejected was because he ran into the middle of things and made contact with a ref, with a referee. And that's just an automatic ejection, which is kind of nonsense. But, you know, especially when they, they pool report said it was incidental. So apparently making in, or not intentional, making unintentional contact with an official while trying to be, while trying to break things up, uh, you know, which is why you run into the middle of things like that. Uh, and, is ridiculous. Donovan Mitchell, who at the time that you can see him make some contact with a referee because he got heated after this happened. He, he had to be restrained multiple times. He was yelling at somebody on the bench, uh, presumably miles Turner and, you know, sort of brushes off Ed Malloy, one of the referees of the game. And that's why everybody assumed he got ejected, but in the pool report, they, they didn't even mention the, him making contact with an official as a reason for his ejection. The reason for his ejection, and this was also listed under one of the reasons Joe was ejected, was being an instigator during an altercation. Uh, and so, or somebody that, you know, keep, keeps tempers flaring. Right, right, right. Which is just <laughs> such a wishy-washy way of doing things. Like it, I, the, They just need a better way of adjudicating these situations. And if the rest are going to allow contact, they need to do a much better fucking job at, you know, making sure that things don't get out of hand like this because they just haven't so far in the season. And if they keep refing things this way, people are going to get injured. Yeah. I haven't seen too many positive reports on the new, uh, refing this year. I've seen a lot of negative. It's, it's, it has not been good. I've not been happy with it. I just keep watching so much contact go like be allowed just an absurd amount. I don't know what they're watching. I just, uh, yeah, it, I mean that's that's always been the question of ours. What are they actually watching? Yeah, but, uh, you know we don't want to see a parade of free throws, but yeah. like this is worse somehow. You, you, the, the cure is worse than the a, disease. Yeah, I think I think if they find a happy medium, I'll come back to watching the NBA. But I'm 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 very sick of what's happened to a lot of well, stuff in the game the last years. But to be fair, um, the New Orleans also sucks. So yeah, I mean that's I'll just watch you know some other team. Or something. <laughs> but, uh, so, Although you haven't had Zion or Brandon Ingram, so yeah, I know. mean that's kind of a big deal. That's like, yeah. If, if the Jazz didn't players. have Donovan and Rudy Gobert, they wouldn't be good either. <laughs> yeah, so, um, going the opposite end of of you know sports that don't look great and aren't happy, uh, you know, since we didn't get to really talk about this, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. Tannen, you know, I saw this. I messaged you that night. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, I I don't know if you remember this, but I remember talking on the show. Um, when we did not have a winning record and Ronald Acuna Jr. blew his knee out halfway through the season. Yeah, you were, like, ready to give up. I had given up. I'm perfectly willing to admit that. Um, the way things were going in the division and the way things were going in the National League, it did not look like we'd have a chance to make the playoffs. We had just lost our best player. Um, and I just thought the the better way to do this is think of the season as a sunk cost and trade away the, there's like a couple players that had some, some value that were on like, you know, expiring deals. Um, thankfully I was wrong. I did not realize how much extra money we had to, to make moves at the deadline. We ended up making, I think six, six trades, if I remember right, four of which were super highly impactful, like beyond what anyone could imagine. 
and everyone stepped up. And I mean, that's a big deal too, is we were not playing good baseball before he got hurt. It was just pure talent. And like the fact that the roster was very good. That was like carrying the team to an almost 500 record. Like we were not doing the little things. Um, there's also, there's just a bunch of stats out there too, that if you, if you look from a certain date on, you can see huge improvements in the way the team played. We went from almost never shifting, you know, like for everybody at home, I hope you know what the shift is in baseball. It's a defensive, a way to defensively align differently than like was the norm for the last 120 years. Um, we were, I think, 28th in the league in shifting, and then we went up to, like, third overnight. And uh, apparently, you know, they got a good look at the analytics. The analytics team came down to the team physically and was, like, showing them on the field. You know, they talked to Ron Washington, our infield coach, and stuff, and they were like, hey, like, we, we have to start doing this. Like, you know, th- th- this is one of the big reasons why we're giving up all these, like, soft singles and stuff and, like, blah, blah, blah. And so the team believed in it, bought into it, and... Uh, from that moment on, they were like the second best defensive team in the major leagues or something like that, you know, which is a, a big deal. Run prevention is just as important as scoring runs, right? And then um, the team started loosening up. They started playing better and everyone stepped up, which is what you have to do when you lose a superstar. You know, I mean, like, when's the, like think about any any team in any sport. You know, it, it does happen, but like how often do you see a team win a championship after they lose their best player? for like the entire season it almost never happens you know like you know i think of tom brady with new england you know like you know like yeah, but you get what i'm trying to say you, there would you have said drew bledsoe was the best player on that patriots team i would have said i it mean was he was like ty law well i mean he was like the, the perceived gap between him and whoever his backup was because bledsoe was probably what like a top five quarterback at the time I don't Maybe even think seven. that's true. He was a, he was a he was a way above average quarterback. Well, he he put up pretty gaudy numbers, but it was yeah. largely because the Patriots in the late nineties threw the ball a lot. Well, I'm just I'm just literally going off the top of my head of a team losing a I, big time player. I can think of one. Oh, oh and it's uh, the, the it's Rams. Them. I'm thinking of the Rams too, because Trent yeah, Green was well, supposed to be like the promised land. Yeah. yeah. But also the 1970 uh, Baltimore Colts. I was, I was not fucking alive, so I couldn't tell you. Well, they, lo- they lost Johnny Unitas, and yeah, Jim yeah. Morrell ended up w- w- playing yeah. the Super Bowl. But you get what I'm saying. Like, the, the, this kind of thing doesn't happen, right? You know, it's not a, yeah. it's not a thing. You know, Ronald's probably a top three player in the game. People will argue that, like, he might be the best all-around, you know, player in the game, which is kind of hard to argue against Shohei Otani now. But you get what I'm saying, because, like, if you take away the pitching thing, right? It's kind of hard to argue that stuff. And um, I got to say, uh, I haven't been moved to tears by baseball too many times in my life, but this is one of the times. Uh, it was absolutely amazing to watch. Um, I got to share it with a bunch of really good close friends. I say a bunch, a few really good close friends. Um, and everyone that I wanted to share it with, I got to go to a game, which was a lifelong you know, dream. I got to go to a World Series game that involved my favorite team. Because which uh, game did you go to? Uh, we ended up losing the game. I went to game two in Houston. Um, it was it was kind of shitty because we only had one opportunity to cheer the entire game. <laughs> like we hit a solo home run in like the second inning, we were to tie it at one one, and then we just played like dog shit in the third inning, and the game was out of reach from there. Which it happens, you know. But um, trying to get everybody together to go, uh, it was like I, I went with one of my friends, Michael um, from Arizona, and like kudos to him because like. I, we were kind of wishy-washy, right, on, like, where we wanted to go and when, because uh, my best friend Jake, who lives here, got extremely sick 
and like couldn't go. And he's like, I can maybe go later in the week, but I can't go early, even though Houston's and you better. you live kind of like halfway between both cities, right? Right. I can drive to Houston. It only takes about four hours. Atlanta's like eight, eight and a half, plus you lose an hour. So I was just going to, it's like a $70 flight. So I was just going to hop on a plane, you know, for like, a, like I was going to buy a one way, I mean, a, a round trip on Spirit and like just bring a backpack or something, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, and then the, the biggest thing, I wanted to go to an Atlanta game because like I wanted to experience that in like the home crowd. You know what I mean? Like, you know, not surrounded by Astros fans. The biggest problem. Filthy, filthy Astros fans. Hold on. The biggest problem. I'm going to pull up this. I have this thing saved in my photos because this is one of the most unreal things. So, obviously, World Series tickets are not cheap. So, that was a big deal, right? Um, I went to Game 2 in Houston. Now, I want you to understand when I say these prices that when you buy them, there's generally like a convenience fee attached to them. And since it's the World Series, the fees are a hundred or a hundred and fifty dollars for these. So it's it, that's on top of the number of what the ticket costs. The cheapest ticket for Game Two of the World Series in Houston was three hundred ninety-two dollars. I will not say the number, but mine was considerably more. <laughs> and we got our fees refunded. Honestly, I'm surprised it was that low. Three ninety-two is either standing room or like the actual like nosebleeds which yeah. i just like i will not i i just won't do that i won't I, i'm not gonna go sit there i'll just rather not go to the game kind of yeah thing. um the cheapest ticket for game three in atlanta this was the first game in atlanta was one thousand one hundred and twenty five dollars that's the mm-hmm. cheapest ticket you could find and it's if you could find them um so that sounds about right to me yeah, that dream was dead. You know, I wanted <laughs> to get a decent seat in in because um, I was willing to spend like over a thousand dollars a game. You know, like with all yeah. the, all things said and done, but you know that's not the same as everybody else views it. And then uh, Jonathan Job was supposed to go with us, but uh, he went to EDC over the weekend and injured his leg and was literally in a wheelchair. He ended, <laughs> he ended up going to game six. That, but... He ended up going to game six in Houston, but couldn't. He went with his dad and they couldn't find more than two tickets, so I didn't get to go. And I don't think they wanted me there anyway because like, like I destroyed <laughs> Game Six and that was that was the clinching game. Yeah, and uh, I would have been insufferable to sit next to for that game. Yeah, but uh, I got to say this: the, the, the playoffs as a whole, uh, like you know, what a dream come true! Like getting to watch that kind of stuff, uh, finally getting past the Dodgers. You know, if you've been a, f- a fan of mine or someone who's followed me on Twitter or a fan of the show, you probably heard me talking about this last year. Like, I just fucking hate the Dodgers. Like. I respect the, the players. Like the your team. Yankees from the nineties. They're the they're the Yankees. Yeah, exactly. They are the new Yankees. Except I actually think they're like way better run than the Yankees were run. They, they just had so much money that they just bought everybody. But like this team has actually run really well too. But like they can go out and add you know Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the deadline without blinking a fucking eye. And like all these other teams are like we can't do that. You know, <laughs> you know and stuff. So like it's a little annoying. And just getting past them. You know, after getting up three one on them in the NLCS last year and not making it through. And then this year converting it. And I'll tell you this. I think I think I talked to you about this. And I may have said it on the show, too. I don't remember exactly when, you know, we recorded episodes. But, you know, me and one of my friends were talking about this a lot. Um, when we were up, <clears throat> when we were up like 2-1, we were up 3-1 again. You know, a lot of people brought that up. They're like, you know, but like there was actually T-shirts made that said kill the narrative. Like, you know, the thing that like, you know, Atlanta sports teams can't close. Like, we you know, we're going to we're going to choke again. It's, it's like reverse the curse from Boston. Yeah, it's, it's the reverse the curse. It's kill the narrative. I kept telling my friend, like, this year feels different. This year feels different. Like, you can you can tell, you can see it on the players' faces. 
you know, Eddie Rosario went fucking scorched earth on the Dodgers and hit like 500 in the series, you know, just he probably made himself an extra 10 or 15 million in, in, uh, in free agency this year. Easy, easy. Um, one of the single greatest performances I've ever seen in my life happened. And I think it was game six. We were up like four, nothing. And one of our best relievers comes in. It's guy named Luke Jackson. We relied on him all season. He's like the best right-handed reliever in our bullpen. Our bullpen was like a bunch of good lefties. Luke Jackson is a righty. And then like, a, a couple people you can't really trust. You know, you're like, uh, hope, you know, cross your fingers. Hope we get the good guy today, you know? And um, he comes in, like, immediately just starts getting tattooed, right? And they get they get two runs, so it becomes four to two, and they get runners on second and third of nobody out. So in my mind, I'm already like, all right, these this two runs tied. are probably going to score. It's tied. <laughs> let's just hold it here. Let's, like, nobody else reaches. Let's, let's get this. And so they bring in Tyler Matzik this left-hander in our bullpen or as we like to call him uh it, it's a it's a it's a it's a known thing they call him something they call him tyler nutsack because the guy just has gigantic balls <laughs> apparently <laughs> not literally but like you know what i mean uh figuratively yeah. um his story is utterly absurd he's actually going to become a disney movie at some point and i think the movie should actually like end at him doing what i'm going to tell you about what he does here in a minute and then i can be like and then the braves went on to win the world series kind of thing right uh tyler Mutz tyler almost said nutsack Matzik was a uh, first-round pick by the Colorado Rockies, like, you know, oh, like 10 years ago or something like that, right? You know, blah, 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 whatever. He actually, you know, gets through the minor leagues pretty quick. Uh, good left-handed starter, you know, really good stuff, right? Good breaking ball, throws the ball really hard, throws strikes. He's a lefty, you know, he's going to get to the major leagues quick. Um, makes his major league debut against the Atlanta, Atlanta Braves. Does pretty well, right? Has an okay season for, for a rookie, especially in Colorado. Within two years, he's out of organized baseball. Uh, he gets the yips. For anybody at home who doesn't know that, it's a uh, cursed word when it comes to sports. Yeah. He, like, Chuck Knobloch developed this for the Yankees. He, like, couldn't throw the ball from second base to first base. He would just, like, throw it into the stands. Uh, Rick Ankeel is a very famous player of this. He was a really good young pitcher for the Cardinals, developed the yips, and then had to remake himself into a hitter and got back to the major leagues as a hitter. Or whatever, and he had a fucking cannon in the outfield too, as well. By the way, because the guy used to throw ninety five, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, very it's 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 happened famously to a, to a, some pitchers. So the guy literally just can't throw a strike anymore. Fast forward four or five years, he's become an electrician. He's doing all this other stuff. He's trying to do baseball on the side. Like he's working out, trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and he's playing in like I forgot the name. Of the, I forgot which league, but some like independent league, you know, like. Cape Cod, you know, like one of yeah. those he's playing for the things. Altoona Pirates. Yeah, just some ridiculous <laughs> thing. He's probably making like not even enough. To, you know, he's got a side job, right? And so, um, Tyler, uh, best part about this, so he starts to figure it back out, right? So he's in the independent league and he's just throwing fucking bullets. You know, <laughs> like the guy still has a great arm. You know, he's a major league pitcher and he starts to figure it out. We're extremely lucky at this point. His manager at the time, when he was with Colorado Rockets, was Walt Weiss, a former, you know, Oakland A, former Atlanta Brave, but he's a coach now on the Atlanta Brave staff, and he's kept in touch and, like, knows about the guy. And so he hears about this and goes and sees him, and he's like, oh, shit, <laughs> you know? And so he's like, he's hey. back. Yeah, yeah, come try out for Atlanta. And so they bring him to Atlanta, and they're like, look, we're going to put you in the bullpen. We want you to come in and just throw a hundred you know just throw it at him and just destroy them uh long story short he becomes one of the best relievers in the major leagues and in this game he comes into that spot right you know four to two runners in second third nobody out first up surefire first ballot hall of famer albert Pujols, right 
to be fair, this is like the corpse of Albert Pujols. True. But his numbers against left-handed pitching is still very, very good. If you throw a ball in the strike zone, he's still going to hit the shit out of it. Like, he can still swing a bat. He just can't. Like, he's not anywhere near as good. His legs are kind of gone. He can't really run. He can't really play defense very well. But he can still swing a bat, right? Not to the level that he did 10 years ago where he's the best hitter in baseball. But it, He can st- hit the ball far. Albert- That's about the only thing he can do. Here's the thing. When, when, when the situation came up, I was like, it's obviously going to be Albert fucking Pujols that does this to us. The, and like literally what you said, the corpse of Albert Pujols. You know, the ghost of Christmas past of Albert Pujols, right? And Matzik just makes a fool of him on three pitches and strikes him out. Next comes a pinch hitter. I think it was like Steve Souza or whatever. Or Steve Souza Jr. or whatever from Bright. If I remember right, he makes a fool of this guy on four pitches and strikes him out. Here's where it gets dicey. The leadoff hitter for the Dodgers comes up, Mookie Betts, one of the best players in the entire major league. Yeah, probably and, top five. Yeah, and Matzik is known as a guy that has a really, really good fastball, and everything works off that. Like, you know, he's got a decent slider, a decent little curveball, but, like, it works off of his, his fastball stuff. Mookie Betts is the best hitting p- hitter in baseball this year against the fastball. Right? Matzik throws... Three fastballs by this guy so easily to strike him out. So he strikes out the side on, I think, 11 pitches or 10 pitches and just dominates the Dodgers through these three innings. And when I tell you it got loud, it's the loudest I've, like, ever heard a stadium in my entire life that didn't involve a ball hitting a, you know, hitting a bat that I've ever heard. And I still get goosebumps. I think you can see it on my face right now. I got goosebumps thinking about it. I still do. It's one of the biggest performances I've ever seen. One of the gutsiest things I've ever seen. And then right then and there, I knew. I was like, it's, it's fucking over. They're going home. And, we're, you know, we're going to wake the World Series. And then, you know, fast forward to the World Series being a, you know, great, great World Series. Like, honestly, just really good one to watch. We won 4-2 to two over the Astros. I don't think that actually tells you how dominant the performance of the Atlanta Braves was in the postseason, especially against the Astros as well. I think the Astros just, A, played bad and got outplayed. Uh, Jose Altuve hit two home runs in the series for the Astros. Do you know how much the rest of the team had? Zero. They got dominated in the in the series. Um, you know, we played bad in game two, and then they had a game where they played well, and we didn't play great. You know, they hit well, you know, in those games one. But <clears throat> real quick, just game six, the game we won, the game I was talking about, you know, in Houston with Jonathan Job and his dad, and I'm at home texting him up a storm, obviously. Uh, you know, Max Freed comes in to pitch for us. He's like, quote unquote, our ace, you know, young guy, uh, great head of hair, by the way. I think this guy could be an actor if he wanted to in real life, you know, just good looking dude. You know, what's the joke on uh, Moneyball? They're like, you know, he looks the part, you know, he's like, you know, you know, he's good looking dude. You know, he's, he's going to play well, you know, he's going to have that confidence. So stupid. But anyway, um, he comes in, has a rocky first inning where like a really weird play happens. I'm not going to explain all of it, but he ends up getting out of it without a run getting give up and like you know i've watched almost every start of max freed's career like i probably have watched every start of max freed's career let's be let's be real and you can tell when the guy just has it and so in the second or third inning i'm sitting there you know my best friend jake and one of his friends and i look over at jake and i and i, I tell him it's it's a it's an old quote from uh, when we won in 95 when we won in 95 it was game six against uh, the cleveland indians tom glavin ends up throwing a eight innings of one hit ball against the cleveland indians and very famously this is a direct quote that everyone tells us has really happened. That he came into the dugout in like the fourth or fifth inning, and he walked up to Chipper Jones and David Justice, and he goes, "Guys, just get me one." He's like, "They're not, they're not." He's like, "They're not scoring on me today. Just get me one." And David Justice is a whole solo home run, and that would have held up. And uh, I remember I looked, I looked at my friend Jake and said, "Just get him one." 
And he looked at him like, he has that look. He's not he's not getting scored on. He throws six shutout innings. We get a lot more than one. Uh, Jorge Soler, did you see the home run he hit where he hit it out of the stadium? Oh, yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. I don't think that ball has landed yet. Wow. Um, it's, the, it's the awkward thing. I've talked about this in Magic before. Like, I think I talked about this. One of my PTQ wins was limited. And on turn three or four, like, I knew that I had won the game. But I had to play, like, seven or nine more turns. You know, you just have to play it out. And it's, a, it's an awkward thing. Like, you're obviously nervous, and you're like, how do I lose from here? How do we mess up? But, like, sitting there watching it as they're, like, they're tacking on run after run after run, and you're like, we're going to win the World Series. So it was pretty awesome, pretty amazing to uh, experience. I haven't bought anything yet. I'm trying to decide. I didn't want to, like, make rest decisions and spend, like, hundreds of dollars right after it buying, like, every piece of memorabilia, you know? Yeah. But you got so to get something. I'm probably going to get, a, like, at least a hat. Or something like that, you know, hat with the with the patch, the World Series patch. You know, you should know this. You're you're a Boston fan. You've they've there been there's been a few of those. Yeah, where's your where's your Utah NBA championship? Oh, that's right, that's right. Sorry, I'm I'm so I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. That needed that didn't need to go there. I'm joking. Ross, I love you and I apologize. But okay, we'll see you next I mean, week. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's a, that's a, yeah exactly. No, but uh, we'll figure it out from there. I've been talking a lot. The last minute, my voice might need us. A break. Let's go ahead and just skip all that. Let's move into what everybody really came here for this week. And this is our top eight list for the new set that just came out, the new Innistrad, uh, Crimson Vow. Uh, this one's more of a vampire-focused, you know, this is the Olivia Vodurin set, you know, coming out. And we do have our top eight. We do have our normal overrated, underrated. I've got a couple of extras this week that we're going to talk about and stuff, too, because we're definitely going to make sure we talk about a little bit of it, because this set, uh, you and I were talking about this. Um... Overall, I think this is one of the more well-made sets I've seen in a while. Yeah, I think we had you know that string of, of sets starting with Throne, really starting with War of the Spark, I guess, through Ikoria. So about a year of just the, where the power level was too high. And then we had almost a year of sets that were just too low. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and this one feels right in the sweet spot. I think there's, in, in particular... I like the curve of power level. Um, it's sort of, I think there's, it's a flat set where there's just a lot of sort of B plus cards, a lot of A minus cards. Mm-hmm. It made it really difficult for me to, to make a list. And same, I'm, really I, same. Yeah, like the, I could mention 15 other cards yep. that I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if they were on your yep. list or somebody else's top eight list. Exactly. Uh, and, and so the, the and th- that is exciting to me. I like that kind of depth. I think that provides more optionality and not having cards that are particularly dominant uh, is also really helpful. So I'm, I'm optimistic about where standard and even other formats are going uh, based on the addition of Crimson Vow. And I love that you just let me kind of use that because that's actually one of the first things that I want to talk about is a card that doesn't show up on our top eight. But it's not because we don't think it's going to be that impactful because I think it is. It could have easily been in both of our top eights. And that's Thalia getting reprinted in the set into a standard set. So Thalia is, is uh, legal and standard. But I think the bigger th- news here is the fact that it's now legal in Pioneer. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I, I do think it'll make an impact in standard. I like the White Agar deck. Yes. Keep, yeah, I think keep so seeing people's lists get posted of like control decks. And I'm just like, you're not beating me, especially now that I have Thalia. Um, but yeah, Pioneer too. Um, you know, I've played a mono white aggressive decks in, in Pioneer. They've popped up now and again. There's other humans decks, even in like company decks. Uh, you can play it, even though companies, you know, a spell that gets affected by Thalia. It's, it's a non bow, but yeah, yeah, it's still fine. But still, 
You know, it's more important to have creatures that have immediate impact on the battlefield to hit off collecting company than it yeah, is. People are playing that with the white archon as well, the little two three flyer for three. I forget the full name of it, but like that and Valia combined together can do some really disruptive stuff. Yeah, so that there's just um, there's a lot of stuff that Thalia does that is uh, that it's just a really powerful card. We know this, you know, it, it is it's been a legacy staple since it was printed, right? It's, uh, it's hold on, it's, it's really hard for white creatures to do that. No, 100%. It's really funny that you mentioned that. One of the first times I ever got on coverage, uh, besides like my Grand Prix Top 8, was at Grand Prix Orlando a million years ago. It was the Innistrad Grand Prix. And I randomly got selected for quick questions for some reason. Like the person just walks up to me. I think they thought I was somebody else. Because they were like, they were like, yeah, you didn't think I'd recognize you? And I was just like, why would you recognize me? You know, because this is like 2010 or something, like whatever, you know, maybe even before that. And they asked, what cards do you think are going to be the most impactful in this set? And one of the cards I answered was, I think Thalia is going to be good in every format ever. I literally said on there, I think it's good in every format, period. It was it was the it was, that was the card I traded for on pre-release weekend. I, I acquired a playset of them immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, that card's great. Not to mention, there's a there's a few spells that can still make it into the white aggressive decks that I do like a lot. Uh, what is it? Fateful Remorse, whatever the new Doombly that gives them a clue. What is the the white card? Fateful Absence. Faithful Advent is that card, and then um, I actually think you might see cards like Lantern Flare possibly make it into some of these white decks, or maybe the sideboard or whatever. That's the one that's like, it's an instant that's one in a white from this set. It deals X damage to target creature. the computer takedown with... It, okay, let me just read it for everybody at home, because it's a weird one. It's one in a white. Uh, Lantern Flare deals X damage to target creature or Planeswalker, and you gain X life. Uh, X is the number of creatures you control, or you can cleave it to where you can just throw it however you want for X red white. So then you can just turn it into a fireball. At that point. So whether you have red man in your deck or not, like, you know, maybe you just play the four, the four dual land if you're not playing the snow lands, which I think that's, it's better to play the snow lands probably anyway. Yeah. But if you can ever find a reason not to, but this is a card that like, you know, in the mirrors, or I do think there's a red aggressive deck coming and we'll talk more about that as the show goes on. This is a card that can absolutely flop that matchup on its head where you're just like, kill your best thing, gain four life, attack you whatever because again this is an instant as well it's not a sorcery like we've seen you know takedown was a sorcery right yeah you know we're starting to see we're starting to see an upgrade on the white removal and they said so i'm like i'm with you i think i think the white deck is good yeah so the, there's plenty of uh, places that valley can slot into it's it's the there's sort of two um there's sort of two play uh sort of baskets that i put cards into two categories and one is a sort of plug-and-play card that can fit into a variety of different decks, and the other is more of a build-around card. And, you know, Thalia is very much a plug-and-play. Uh, and Can your deck cast this? Does it hurt your own deck a lot? Yeah, no? good. Like the, the, <laughs> yeah. The, it's pretty simple to know when the card is so. going to be good. Like We already know the power level of it. Uh, it's not on my list because I don't like to put reprints. Same. Um, but, it, you know, if I were to include reprints on my list, it, it would be very high. I will make exceptions for, like, if Brainstorm gets reprinted. You know, just something you're like, this is going to be the best thing possible. Like, you should yeah, do this, well, you know, kind I, of thing. I think they learned their lesson with trying to put yeah, it in yeah. store. That, that's kind of why I went there. Yeah. Because <laughs> we talked about that on the show. Um, another card that I wanted to talk about real quick, because I think it's going to show up in another format. And this was up there for one of my underrated cards is, do you know what the card uh, Inspired Idea is? Um, no. So it's the... Um, let me find it on here. It's it's the blue card that has uh is it, yeah it's cleave. So it's it's a sorcery. It's two and a blue. Draw three uh, cards. Card. Your maximum hand size is reduced by three 
for the rest of the game, but you can cleave it for three blue blue sorcery. I see this card, and I I, I want to see someone test this in like Pioneer in the Lotus Breach deck. Because like the, the the losing three cards doesn't mean a goddamn thing. In the turns that you're going off, you're just literally tapping one land to draw three cards, and then you're netting mana anytime you're untapping lands. And this seems super efficient, and like maybe you have a couple copies of this. Because you'd also still just cost cast the damn thing for five, too. And like three three mana for three cards is pretty gross in that deck when you're trying to go off. So I can see someone like this is a card that I haven't seen anyone talk about that I'm just like maybe we should take a look at this one like just a, just a peek. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I I read this card and I'm just like there's got to be a good home for it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I, just, right? I haven't seen the home yet. Yeah, exactly. When you see a card like this, I'm always like, where can we break this? This is, this is not a card that I'm putting in a control deck. Like, you know, like this is a card that tingles my spidey senses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's this one. And what is it like patchwork crawler, the blue card where you exile a card from the graveyard and it gains its abilities. You're like, someone's gonna do something fucked up with this card. You know, someone's not gonna do anything fair with it. You know, yeah. kind of stuff. So but uh, I was about to say, was there anything? And like you and I talked about, there's, there's a ton of like, I think this set has really good sideboard cards in it. Or cards that are going to be, like, really, really good role players. You know, I'm looking at, like, Lantern of the Lost as another card that I think is, you know, you might see as, like, the the next big sideboard graveyard hate card. Because it has an immediate effect when it comes into play. And then you can leave it there to kind of stop stuff in the future. Or you can spend the mana to, you know, re-garner the, the card quality. That, I mean, card quantity that you lost as well. The, the fact so. that you get the card and the graveyard hate at the same time is really nice. Yeah, another one that I think is big that I just wanted to mention real quick is a braid being reprinted. Another card that I think is going to make its way into a lot of sideboard card, uh, de- sideboards and even some main decks because not only does it kill a lot of the creatures in this format, it also kills Zika's Chariot. You know, it's a couple of big targets like that as well. And one more thing about it. It's not an uncommon anymore, Ross. It's a common. So for any of you Popper fans out there, I think this is a card that's going to be making some waves in that format possibly as well, because this is a strong magic card. I mean, you remember how excited I was when this card got printed for Legacy? Do you remember how excited I was? Like, I get to free up a sideboard slot. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to, I got to like combine a sideboard slot for, uh, you know, something that was uh, Ancient Grudge plus another removal spell. And I was like, this is a card that can do both. And freeing up one extra sideboard slot was huge. You know, for my decks. Yeah, so. I I noticed that it was a became a common, so that's cool for Popper. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, I just see it in like every pack when I'm drafting the set right now. I'm just like, do these people not know how good it, it put some respect on a braid's name? Like seriously. <laughs> uh, was there any like anything else you want to talk about before we get into the topic? Because I remember I could name so like you you were talking about this, you know, Circle of Confinement, Parasitic Grasp. Like I could just name so many of these cards. Yeah, Hero- coming back. There's a there's Syncopate's a lot. Huge Hero's Downfall, which is an uncommon now, yeah. but like. That card is just a very efficient card. You know, blue-black control becomes a think again. That's like the that's the removal spell you're going to be like, I'm playing four of this card. You know? Like, I actually disagree there. I, th- I think three mana is just so much in standard these days for a removal spell that you, it's hard to play four of that card um, unless you have really heavy removal. I think you'll see decks play one, two of that card. Yeah, but it's yeah, not going to be what it was yeah. back in Theros era. I definitely might have overspoke a little bit there. Um, do you want to go ahead and just move into the top eight? Yeah, let's do it. We've already been going for 40 yeah. minutes. Yeah, tell you what. I'm going to start with my top eight because I want you to actually talk about the card more because you've done some stuff with it. And I yeah. know it's on your list, but this is what it came in at my number eight. And that's Fellstinger. Uh, Fellstinger is two and a black for a three, two zombie scorpion. So relevant creature type, decent power of toughness for its for its uh 
for its cost. It has Death Touch, which is relevant. But here's where it really gets good. It's got Exploit. Uh, for anybody at home who might not know what Exploit is, you might not have been around. This is a reprint. This is a harken back to an ability that we hadn't seen in a while. It says, when this creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. You can sacrifice the creature you're casting, by the way. It says, when it exploits a creature, target player draws two cards and loses two life. Um, for obvious reasons, this is really good. You know, it says draw cards, you lose life, like whatever, who cares? But you like this for some other reasons too, right? Yeah, I like any time I can draw cards while meaningfully impacting the battlefield. Is when you're, you know, when you think about drawing cards with just a straight up card draw spell, whether it's divination or tidings or whatever, you're Which spend- this, this keeps up with on mana parity, by the way. Yeah, you're spending a full turn and you're not impacting the battlefield, and you end up falling really far behind. And you, you know, that's why you usually see those kinds of spells paired with a lot of cheap interaction so that you can catch back up. But it's even better when you can draw that, generate that same kind of card advantage, but also impact the battlefield at the same time. So you just never fall behind at all. There's no need to put overload with cheap interaction, and you can play just generally more powerful cards, you know, across the 60 in your deck. And Velstinger does that pretty effectively. You know, there are going to be times when you sacrifice it, uh, you know, and that's fine. Sometimes you, you need to do that. But all, all the time, you're, a lot of the time, you're going to be looking to sacrifice, you know, um, the the I'm I'm zombie tokens yeah yeah I was gonna say uh, eye witch shambling gas uh, Jadar the that's yeah, the yeah. decayed zombie tokens the creature that makes decayed yeah, zombie tokens skyclave shade yeah uh, you know I made a list of the cards I was like these are yeah. this is the easy ones to get to there's probably more and like you you could I could even see this you know see playing this card in um you know in pioneer in like a collected company sacrifice deck uh, I think it would be cool there. Um, you know, I mean, I, it's th- it's not quite there for modern because modern, like, you just need to it's be more powerful. Too ex- yeah. yeah, it's too expensive. And like, don't forget, we still have Academe's Awakening in standard yep. right now too, and the, which it's in black. And like, this is a card that does some really dumb stuff with that card too, where you're playing cards, you're getting value off them, you're putting them in the graveyard, and then you're getting more value off them. There's so many things to be done here with this card. So the, there's there's just a lot of easy homes to make use of exploit. The trigger is powerful. Notably, in a more aggressive deck, you can target your opponent. You can target you just your need opponent. to dome them yeah. for two. And the real important thing to me is is death touch because as a mm-hmm. three two, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be enough because you are sacrificing a little bit of board position here. You know, you have to sacrifice a creature. Uh, so it's nice when you can sacrifice a somewhat irrelevant one and get a little value out of it. But here, that three two death touch is going to hold the fort against. Big creatures out of green decks against, say, mono green. You yeah. know, Adeline out of mono white. The most aggressive things that your opponent plays, you know, trades with all of them because of death touch. I guess you can attack into strikers. You can attack into dragons. You know, yeah, attacking like dragons, four, four dragons. smoldering eggs. So it's a good attacker against the controlling decks that, that people are playing. Um, so that that death touch ability really ensures that you can hold the fort against aggressive decks and still attack against controlling decks while generating this kind of card advantage, developing those sorts of sacrifice synergies. Uh, you know, on top of that, it's a zombie. So you got the tribal thing going for it. So there's just a lot of little things going for this card on top of a package that is already pretty solid. So th- that elevates it to me. Uh, and I think it's a good, it's one of good choice. Th- it's one of those cards where the sums of its parts make it really, really good when you start to look at all of it. And I think I might have it too low on my list. This happens almost every time one of us gets a card on our list and we let the other person talk about it and we really think about it. It's like, because I'll, I'll readily admit I have not been as in tune with magic over the last month as, you know, as, as a lot of other people have, you know, with me having to do flesh and blood so much in, in the last month. So having to learn a completely, learn a completely new game. Good Lord. I'm so happy to have that 
not that I'm happy to be done with it. Like, don't take that right. I absolutely adored my time there and love to keep doing it next year, but it was hectic. So, yeah. What was your number eight? My number eight is Cemetery Gatekeeper. So the, there's a, the cycle of mythic creatures that are all cemetery something. This is the red one. So this is a colorless and a red 2-1 vampire with first strike. When it enters the battlefield, exile a card from a graveyard. And whenever a player plays a land or casts a spell, if it shares a card type with the exiled card, Cemetery Gatekeeper deals two damage to that player. Now, you know, the the thing with this uh, this cycle is they all exile a card from a graveyard when they enter. Some also do it when they attack. The black one also does it when they die, when it dies. Uh, it's the red and white one that only do it when they enter. But, but that's in part because of how powerful the, you know, static or the triggered ability is. And in this case, you know, gate, Gatekeeper is the cheapest one. So that's usually a good sign as the best one for constructed in the cycle, just being the cheapest one. It's a reasonably sized aggressive creature at 2-1 first strike for 2, so it can attack into extra things. Um, but, you know, you get a little bit of graveyard hate. You can exile, you know, uh, a Galvanic iteration and shock them when they play instance. You can exile against an aggro deck. Like if you turn one Spikeville Hazard or play with fire, they're one drop, and then you exile their well, you creature. Can't, you can't Spikeville Hazard it, but yeah. Oh yeah, we can do Spikeville Hazard. Yeah. But yeah, play with fire. Like any, you know, any, you know what we yeah, mean. Frostbite, yeah. shock, uh, yeah, <laughs> like any kill, form yeah. of that. And, you know, make their turn one creature die and exile it. You know, suddenly they're taking a lot of damage when they're casting creatures. Now the ability is symmetric, but if you're a red aggro deck, usually you don't care about that. And the thing that really elevates this card to me is its potential in formats with fetch lands, where when your opponent plays a fetch land on turn one and you exile that, and now like you've got lot. you know now you've got a Zozu for two mana, uh, you know that's really really powerful and can you know, generate a lot of extra damage. Now it is a two mana two one for modern, which is a format with fetch lands, but even in Pioneer with like Fabled Passage, if they play that on turn one, um, you know if they. You know, you could I could even pair it with like land destruction. I don't know if that's possible, um, but th- there's just a lot of options in terms of an a reasonably aggressively cost a creature that provides interaction with the graveyard and can often deal you know four six damage without attacking. Uh, I, I like a lot of what's going on there, uh, and and I think it has potential in non-standard formats as well as standard. So it, it sneaks in at eight. I have this a little bit higher on my list. Uh, I'll just gloss over it when we get there because of all the reasons you said. I like this card a lot. Um, the reason I have it a little higher than you is I do think that we're nearing the moment because we haven't had it for a while. But we're, we're nearing the moment in standard where we have a red deck that's playable, like an aggressive red deck that can keep up, which I think healthy formats have good aggressive decks. You know, have good mono red decks because it helps keep things in check. Um, I do think that this is a big time player in Pioneer. One of the main reasons I say that is one of the most popular decks in Pioneer right now, or the most popular deck in Pioneer right now, used to the graveyard a lot. Yeah, no, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it Phoenix? Is it Phoenix? So like nabbing an instant and making mm-hmm. them take a bunch of damage, you know, when they cast spells mm-hmm. or nabbing an Arclight Phoenix even is huge. And then any card, because I don't know if you've seen some of the newer versions, they're even heavier on Delve now. They have like the Time Walk Delve spell well, with iteration. Yeah, well, they're trimming on on Treasure Cruise to play the Time Walk Temporal yeah. Trespass and just playing four yeah, still but now pieces that, as their card advantage. Yeah, and so an, now they're of course. right, but so like they're also playing. Um, galvanic iteration as well and they're also playing the what's the the blue instant that like you can look the top three and then you can mill them 
otherworldly journey. They're playing otherworldly journey a lot right now, and in some of these decks too. Maybe no, not otherworldly exactly gaze. All, otherworldly, otherworldly gaze. Is the white I think is a spell that puts. A yeah, you're right. Out. That's from Kamigawa. Yeah, that's a little little blast from the past. But hey, maybe we get that card back in a month or a couple months. But but I think that this card has, and this is why I have it higher in mind. I think we'll see. There's a chance that we'll see that the ability on it's a lot more impactful than people. Like when I first looked at it, I kind of like glazed over it. I was like, no, this could be way more impactful than we think. It being symmetrical, I think, is one of the things holding it back from being busted, you know, from being really good. Not to mention, the size, I think, is actually more relevant in older formats than in the newer ones. Like, you know, it blocks Ragavan and some DRCs a little bit better. You know, um, in standard, it's going to fall behind mono green pretty fast. So you're going to have to play this in a deck that can remove a 4-4 from the from the field readily, easily, you know, and, and get it through. Well, red is pretty good at doing that, so that's Yeah, good. that's what I'm saying. You're gonna, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's the one thing. If, if this if the body becomes irrelevant, you either need to be boarding it out or we need to be talking about this card differently, you know. But in the older formats, you know, like, hey, you can't just block this with a Phoenix and have it trade, you know. Um, it does bust through stuff pretty well. And then it is it does have First Strike, which is going really big for it. So the, the removal spells don't have to be huge right like if you have shock you know i know shock isn't illegal but a card like that you can stack the first strike damage shock the thing and then like hey you killed it you know um and stuff like that so so i think this card is very good i I like this card a lot and we might see quite a bit of this with some of the other cards that we had rated highly as some of the last sets that haven't really played much because i think the red aggressive deck is coming and it might not be the deck that you know, we've we've seen and come to love where it's like one drop, two drop, three drop, kill you. Like it might have that, but we might be seeing more like a mid-range red deck happen. And there's a card on both our list that comes up later that might also help with this. So a little little foreshadowing. And last thing to note on this card is it's a vampire. So a key, you know, it has membership in a key tribe. And I think of all the tribes in you know, in Estrad, the tribe that I think has the most potential, at least in standard is the vampire tribe a little awkward you know obvi- a little obvious to say that after the, the sort of vampire themed set but vampires has you know i think it has the best tribal payoff in vampire socialite the champion of the perished is up there as well and i like zombies a, a bit there, too yeah i think that's i think that one's just a little too weak overall yeah but vampire socialite really strong and then another payoff that uh in voldar and estate that uh spoiler alert we'll mm. talk a little bit about later and that that's a big thing for me as well. That was actually part of my my underrated was the fact that we're not talking about vampire decks. So I think there there might be one. We'll have to see if the mana can can work. That's the thing. Is like it seems like they need to be red black, and the mana does not look great for the first few turns of the, of those decks. So we'll see. Uh, so I think we're on to my number seven. Yes. Uh, this one, um, <clears throat> this is one of the ones I'm the most unsure about. But big surprise, it's a mythic dragon that's a four four for four. This is a mana form Hellkite. And the more I sit there and look at it, the more I'm like, maybe not with the way that the format's going. But I do think that this could be a good transformational sideboard card for some decks. Or if you want to go a different route with your decks, this one's pretty good. So if everybody at home, it's two and two red for a dragon. That's a four four of flying. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell. Create an XX red dragon, a losing creature token with flying in haste, where X is the amount of mana spent to cast a spell. X all the token at the beginning of the next end step. Can I say how much I love the new templating of create the XX for the amount of mana spent? So you can't just like play this, delve a, uh, what do you call it, a treasure cruise and just kill someone immediately? Like Todd and I talked about this last week and I, mm-hmm. I came oh, I down. I laughed the, really hard, yeah. Yeah, I came down on the other side of this, but... <clears throat> 
I don't no, want to. No, I, I don't want to rehash that rant. No, of course not. I, I think it's. <laughs> a, I think it's actually good that they did this because the cards are more. It it seems like it's uh, working more as it's intended to. Um, oh, it certainly no. is. I like this card a lot. Uh, if it does make constructing, I, I, the card obviously reads very powerful. That's why I have it, you know, on my list. I have it high because I'm not super high on it. Maybe it should have been my eight, and you know, uh, Felstinger should have been different. But uh, this card is going to end games very quickly. Um, yeah, I also think it's very good with Alchemist Gambit because it, it does say exile the token at the beginning of the next end step. Now, normally that's you know there to have it exile before you get another turn because your opponent takes the next one. But in combination with Gambit, you end up getting a second attack out of the token that you make, uh, which is pretty cool. And Gambit is already you know costed to be in a very aggressive deck, just like Maniform Hellkite is. So th- there's definitely some potential there for a... a uh, aggressive deck that ramps into these big flyers and then casts a pretty quick alchemist gambit to end the game uh and in combination with the goldspan dragon even if you're not an is it deck you know Cor- Corey actually played uh this week on versus live it was a viewer submitted deck that was naya that played three mm. copies of alchemist gambit but it was a naya deck with a lot of the treasures like we saw last summer like you know it had just Parasite, okay. it had magda it had prosperous inkeeper it had goldspan dragon so it's not that hard to imagine getting one treasure with goldspan dragon to make blue blue or two treasures without goldspan to make blue blue and casting it for the cleave cost if you really need to and getting some value out of it that way but there are a lot of times when you just you know curve three four into goldspan dragon and have an extra treasure around uh and then get one when you attack and make four mana and then gambit and kill them so Moon, Moonvale Regent really slots well into a deck like that. It's definitely a very aggressive card. Um, it's a little awkward in that it's a very aggressive-minded card that requires you to have a high density of non-creature spells when most cre- you know aggressive decks these days are really heavy on creatures. Um, so that's one of the things that gives me pause about the card, but there's definitely potential if you build around it in the right way. Uh, absolutely. I think this card is you know very good and very powerful, and like it reads very powerfully, right? So I, I wouldn't be surprised... Yeah, this card was good somewhere, but I'm not as high on it as I was when I was first doing this list. So you're number seven. Um, my number seven is a card that I'm sure our uh, compatriot, Brennan DeCandio, is high on, uh, and that is a Dig Up. So this is a one green sorcery with cleave. It says, search your library for a basic land card and reveal it and put it into your hand and shelf your library. The cleave cost is one black, black, green. And if you pay that, then you get to take out the basic land restriction and revealing, of course, because when you search for generic cards, you never reveal them. Uh, so it essentially becomes a, a uh, slightly harder to cast Diabolic Tutor. Um, so sort of a split card in that regard. And this is just, you know, we've, we've seen the power of this kind of uh, lay of the land with upside before we had a tune with ether which was banned in standard because of how powerful the energy mechanic was we also had traverse the oldenwald which was a standard staple dig up i think is pretty similar to those and actually demands less out of your deck building than those two cards a tune you know you need to take advantage of the energy and uh traverse you need to be able to you know achieve delirium with some regularity and dig up really just says do you have green and black mana in your deck and, you know, you always like the extra mana fixing, even if you're not straight Golgari, if you're three colors, even better. You know, if you're playing Jund or Sultai or Abzan or whatever, uh, it can do some cool things. And 
I, I don't see a home for it immediately, but this is a card that I expect to show up with regularity during its time in Standard, so I wanted to put it on the list, even if it's not something that I'm focused on right now, uh, because it's just such an... This is this is a plug-and-play card. You know, I, Maniform Hellkite that you just had is very much a build-around-me card. Dig Up is just, you know, almost any non-hyper-aggressive Golgari deck is going to want to play this in significantly high numbers, take advantage of the mana fixing, be able to, you know, access some powerful singletons in your main deck maybe, or just, you know, have a lot more late game power than you otherwise would. And for, <clears throat> for those reasons you were saying towards the end, that's the reason why it's not on my top eight, though I do think this is a good card. I just don't want to play with Lay of the Land that often in Magic nowadays, but... It is a little restrictive. You know, you have to have black and green mana in your deck, and then we have to have a deck that's good, that has those two colors, that wants this kind of effect. And it's a little slow. I sent one to our group chat last night, Tannen. I, no, I, I, what, what's the thing? Uh, you know, I don't want to read all that. I'm either happy for you or sorry that happened. It doesn't happen <laughs> in the morning. Sometimes when I wake up, I see you and Brendan have gone on, and I'm like, I, I'm not reading all that shit. <laughs> or whatever, but. This, this deck may have had four copies of Witherbloom Apprentice in it. Okay, I kind of like that. But yeah, dig up with a real apprentice. Let's yeah, go. Let's, let's get him. Yeah, drain him. Magecraft him out. Yeah, yeah. yeah get him. Drain him. So that was your number seven. So we're going to my number six, I believe. Right. Yes. Uh, for me, this is another one. Um, it, it's a tribal card. What were you saying earlier? It's the way you said uh, the way you worded it. I liked it a lot. We were talking about the, the, the it being a vampire and that being relevant. Uh, um, I forgot how you worded it. I had to look it up. I, but, I don't uh, know. This is another card for me that I think um, the ceiling on it's very high. Uh, and while the cost of it might be a tiny bit restrictive, I, I kind of like it. And it's Headless Rider. It's two and a black for a zombie 3-1. It says when it or another non-toki, non-toki, non-token, I swear to God, I talk for a living. Whenever Headless Rider or another non-token zombie you control dies, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token. Bam, nailed it. First try, Tana Grace, is what they call me. But anyway, <laughs> um... So, you know, if a, if a zombie, obviously if a zombie deck gets good, this is, this is a card for you. Um, this is also, you know, this is not as good as, what was the 3-2 the version of this for three mana that we saw in the black-green Golgari decks in standard? Midnight Rider? Uh, was that it? Was it Midnight Rider? Yeah, there's a card the, like that. And, that dr you draw a card and lose a life? Yeah, that you draw a card and lose a life. Yeah, yeah it was pretty similar to that. Um, this, this is not Not going to let him catch me no, Tannen. Yeah, this, this is not that, right? But... This is a card, I, I could even see this in certain decks in other formats as well, you know, depending on what you're doing, what the crazy stuff that you're doing in there as well. This is a card that uh, in some games is going to way overperform. And if this tribe, you know, depending on whatever format you're playing or standard or whatever, if this tribe is good or playable, this is going to be one of the cards that does it. And this is one of the cards that you're going to want to have every single game. It being a three drop, even though it's just a three one, but it being a three drop, being able to impact a game early is super important. Yeah, uh, I do think this is a pretty powerful card for a zombie deck. Um, I will say two things about it. One is that when you read it, I think there's a temptation to pair this with a lot of sacrifice effects and like go go ham. And I don't think you need to do that. I think you just play this. You just and play magic. Play yeah. an aggro deck, and when your cards trade, you generate value. So you, you really don't have to go out of your way to make this card good, because if you're playing an aggro deck, then your opponent is going to need to kill your creatures, you know, to, to not die, and then you get value when they die anyway. So, and that's actually a good thing. It, it, th that means this card is requiring less of you. It's actually less of a built around than it looks like. That I like. The thing that gives me pause about this card is it is a three mana, one toughness creature that 
gets destroyed by spike field hazard. And while we've already, you know, we've seen elite spellbinder succeed in that kind of metagame, I actually was lower on spellbinder playing my white deck than others were because of the threat of, of, of spike field hazard. And I think the not, I think the numbers of spike felt hazards are going to increase because of the presence of Thalia. So other one toughness creatures, because Thalia is so powerful, take, really uh, take some splash damage. So this is one of my, you know, this is one of the cards that w- would have been in the pool of cards I considered. Didn't make my list, but I do think it is a very uh, solid card. And I agree with you that if a zombie deck comes up, it'll be this and Champion of the Perished that are the major payoffs. Yep for that deck and the reason to be to be zombie decks it, it's number two on that list to me to champion because i think champion is just really powerful but headless rider is, is a close number two there so uh you know not surprised to see it make your list all right you're up my number six is fell stinger this was your number eight so no need to go uh into you know great detail there I, I talked about it i like the card quite a bit and i had it a little bit higher than you did right so i think we're on to my number five now yep <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to keep up. I'm, uh, I don't know if you've noticed at home, I'm muting a lot right now. I'm having a little bit of a coughing fit. So we're going to try to get through this. Excuse me one second. <clears throat> so um, this one, by the way, uh, best named card in the set for me. Uh, my number five, Chandra, Dressed to Kill. Absolutely <laughs> love the name of this card. Um, it's a legendary planeswalker. planeswalker. It's a Chandra. Uh, one red red, plus one, add red. Chandra, Dressed to Kill, does one damage up to one target player or planeswalker. Very relevant ability, right? Uh, mana acceleration, plus the fact that, hey, you just take one or ping a loyalty counter off of another Planeswalker, that this is all very, very relevant. You know, it adds up as the game goes on. Plus one. Um, so it's, so there's two plus ones here. Uh, exile the top card of your library. If it's red, you may cast it this turn. So uh, this is along the lines of a lot of red cards in the past that have been good enough for constructed where, you know, you have to kind of like reveal the top card of your library you know, get some extra card advantage up. So this does one of two things. It either ramps you or gets you some kind of card advantage. It has no way to defend itself from a normal ability, which is like something that I do like out of Planeswalkers, but this leads you to being want, wanting to be mono-red, right? So your deck's either going to be pretty aggressive or you're going to be playing like kind of like a mid-range red deck like I kind of alluded to earlier, where this just slots in and fits in really well, right? You're going to play this, add the red, and you're going to like shock something or you're going to spike fill hazard their creature, or something like that, and they're going to take one, right? Or, you know, later in the game, you have a bunch of mana, you're like, hey, plus one this, find something to do, you know, kind of thing. Now, it does have an ultimate, it's got a minus seven, it says exile the top five cards of your library, you may cast red spells from among them this turn. You get an emblem with, whenever you cast a red spell, this emblem deals X damage to any target, or X is the amount of mana spent to cast that spell. It starts at three loyalty, right? So that means four turns of this being in play, and then you can minus seven of it, the game's probably over by then. You know, it seems like maybe a win more, but it's something that you could possibly I mean, do. Every Planeswalker Ultimate is a win more. So. Right, right. But I think these first two abilities are enough at, with it being a three-mana Planeswalker that this can be good. If this was four, I would not like this at all. But at three, I think this is like at a really good sweet spot. I completely agree with you. This is actually my number five as well. Sweet. So we, nice. we align there. Um, Todd and I talked about it uh, quite a bit last week. I also wrote an article about it. Um, I like this card a lot. I actually think that the the notion, I, I mentioned this last week, but I think the notion that Planeswalkers need to defend themselves in this very narrow way where they literally kill some permanent 
or create a, a blocker, right? Those are the two ways that we've seen Planeswalkers directly protect themselves. I actually don't think that's that necessary, especially for three mana Planeswalkers, because they're coming down early enough that your opponent hasn't had time to create a big battlefield, or you killed their creature on turn two, or traded two for it. not good you enough know, to kill it. And one way that you, the way you protect Planeswalkers, in fact, in the best way, is by being ahead on the battlefield. You know, it is very difficult to attack Planeswalkers when you're behind. So that's really how you, you you protect them. And that's why we think, oh, if I, I can either add to my battlefield by making a creature and that can block, or I can detract from my opponent's battlefield, and those are ways to protect the Planeswalker. But adding mana and getting ahead on tempo that way is another way of getting ahead on the battlefield. So that plus, first plus one ability to me is actually a way that protects Chandra, especially because Chandra is two plus ones. So you're always going up. You know, if you compare it to Soren, Soren is a four mana planeswalker that in order to make a, a token, this two three vampire token that it makes, has to go down to two loyalty. You know, so do you want to have two loyalty on a on a four mana planeswalker or four man, four loyalty on a three mana planeswalker with the ability to potentially play a spike filled hazard, a frostbite, a play with fire, like you mentioned, and still interact with your opponent or just play a one drop creature. You, know, you can play a Falcon Wrath, Pit Fighter, you can play a Kessig, um whatever the one two menace Kessig something, right? Um, uh, Kessig Wolf Rider, you know, and have a blocker that way. So that that plus one ability to me is a form of protection and one of the reasons I like this card quite a bit. And I also like that the two plus one abilities, which is really how I'm evaluating the card because, you know, the ultimate on every Planeswalker is a bonus. It's like uh, whatever, yeah, yeah. They work well together because the, yeah, first one, the first one provides tempo. It provides reach if you need it in a little bit of sense. It, and... Uh, and the second one provides card advantage. So if you're flush with resources, flush with cards in hand, you can generate the extra mana and deploy your hand more quickly and more efficiently. If you are very low on resources, low on cards in hand, you can use the second ability and start refueling. So you're always going to have one good ability there to use. And on a three-mana Planeswalker, starting with a pretty high loyalty, I think it's very easy to meet the deck-building restrictions to make this card work, which is have a lot of red cards. And yes, like that's often just going to mean like, be a mono red deck, you know, and cur- you know, curve all the way up to five so that your Chandra can ramp you into your Goldspan Dragon and you feel great. But I also think there's the potential for is it decks to use utilize this card. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good gold is it cards. There's Expressive Iteration, obviously one of the best cards in Standard. There's Wandering Mind. We'll talk about that one a little bit later. There is Prismari Command. You know, there's Galazeth Prismari. That you know, that's just four of them off the top of my head of pretty good gold cards. So if you slant your is it deck to be a very red base, and then you go into blue, you get access to a lot of good gold cards. You know, you can have a couple mono blue cards in there and still be fine with your Chandra. You know, if you're, I, I compare this card a lot to Domri Raid, where like you want it to be about half creatures, maybe a little bit less, and from there, like it was a really solid source of card advantage and interaction. This does very similar, uh, somewhat similar things, um, and has the uh, similar deck building restrictions. And Domri was you know, one of the best cards in Standard while it was there. See, I actually can, well, I like your comparison, but in my mind, I compared it to another Planeswalker, which. It was a smaller leap, I think, in some ways, and mine was Chandra Torch of Defiance. While being a mana cheaper, all three of the abilities are very similar to what Chandra did. Like, extremely similar, besides the the minus and deal four damage, which you and I talked about. Like, it doesn't have that, and that's why this is a three-mana Planeswalker. Yeah. And while I do think that other card was better in, like, most ways, it was from a more—it was in a much more hostile environment. You know, you're thinking of the decks that were going around then. They were extremely aggressive— and good at killing planeswalkers, and there was like energy and stuff. So like, 
that card was not always at its best there. Like, that card could have dominated certain standards, and it didn't get to... Like, it definitely shined in its own, but it didn't get to be... It was still very good. I wouldn't say it dominated, but it was very good. It could have been messed up for a while. That was one of the better Planeswalkers ever printed, honestly. And it didn't really get to shine as much as it could have because of how good everything else that was going on in that format was. I'm not saying this one's anywhere near that. I'm just saying the abilities, when you look at them, are very similar. Yeah, and, right? and they create a very well-rounded card mm-hmm. that is always relevant. The one thing I'm gonna that I'm going to say that could keep this card back is if the plus one where it says, you know, it has to be a red card, you may play it this turn. You know, you can't play lands, you couldn't play lands anyway off Chandra. Um that, that could be the one thing that keeps it from being really, really good and probably was made this way to keep it from being busted. It's the fact that you can't just play every card. You can't be like, oh, I'll play this land or play this spell. Um, so you do get the you do get the give and take there as well. So uh, definitely a great, great card. And uh, that was my number five. And you said you it was your number five. My number four was Cemetery Gatekeeper. So uh, we've already gotten through that one. We've talked you know, a lot about that. So what was your number four? My number four is a card I mentioned earlier in the show, and that is Voldaren Estate. So this is a rare land. Tap Static Colorless. You can also tap Pay One Life, add a mana of any color, spend that mana only to cast a vampire spell, and then five tap, create a blood token. This ability costs one less to activate for each vampire you control. And to me, you know, this is the card that really makes me uh, excited to play vampires as a tribe, especially in standard, because generally the problem with multicolor aggro decks is their mana, which you you mentioned. And to me, I think you generally need three dual lands to make a two-color aggro mana base work, and you now have three. Now, Voldaren Estate is great. The pathway is great. Having a, you know, a slow land is not the best for an aggro deck, but it's also not the worst. You know, we saw Rakdos decks work last uh, season with a Fabled Passage, which is, you know, even even worse, right? And it's as you have to wait one more turn to get it untapped. Um, but being able to, you know, you know, have one of those and have it be your third land and you can curve out perfectly. And then, yeah, you're going to have some games where you draw multiples of them and you have a tapped land early. And honestly, like that is not the end of the world if that happens somewhat rarely because it's your only tap land in your deck and you're playing, you know, 22 to 24 lands. So I think this having that third dual land that Vampires has that really no other tribe has is going to be really important. With Pathways, you could potentially even splash white and take advantage of some of the the Orzhov Vampires and even be a three-color aggressive deck. Uh, That's a little bit ambitious, but I think a a Rakdos Vampire deck has the mana to work, and that's, that's step one for me. And now step two is do I have the payoffs? I think Vampire Socialite is excellent. I think there are some other, uh, you know, pretty good vampire cards. Angie, I think, is pretty good. Um, and there might be, um, I feel like there's another one. But really, like, you don't need that many. So, you know, that's three of the, the land Socialite, which is really, really good. You know, Vampire Socialite is, it's not quite Thali's Lieutenant, but it's way better than just a two-mana Lord, even... Yeah, even if it's sometimes it's awkward and you have to play it post combat, right? Um, you know that that it, it's honestly not a big deal because the body of it is already relevant. You know, you can play dominating vampire. That's another payoff to be good against aggro decks. Maybe that's a sideboard card. So, um, you know, Voldarn Estate is really what p- puts vampires over the top or elevates them above the rest of the tribes uh, from this iteration of Innistrad. And I could even see playing it in Pioneer where. Rakdos, you know, it, it's the the friendly color pairs that have always had weaker mana. And if you build a deck that is heavy creatures, and I actually have one 
in my, you know, Google, every set, I have a Google Doc of just brews with, with that set. And, you know, you can now play your Blood Crypts and your Blightstep Pathways, and you have Voldarn Estate and Unclaimed Territory if you're heavy creatures. Now you're playing 16 dual lands. So I have a Rakdos Vampire deck in Pioneer. They're like, I don't know if it's good, but it looks pretty cool. And we'll post I, that in the uh, we'll post that in the Patreon section of our Discord. Yeah, me, sure. Um, I'll, I'll I'll copy and paste it and put it there. But you know, this is just a brew off the top of my head. I haven't played a game with it, but it has some pretty powerful cards in it, and it has a really good curve, and I think it has good mana, and it plays four Muta Vault, and you know, those are basically the things I want to do in Aggro decks and Pioneers. So, two things. I'm going to say the Pioneer one first, real quick, because uh, you know we're talking about that literally the second. Um, a, I, I agree with you about the Pioneer stuff. I And the reason I agree with you, and I think this is relevant, is I think Pioneer is poised for a comeback. If Paper Magic starts happening again relatively soon, at some rate, you know, obviously it can come back. But especially, like, I, I can't believe it's not, it hasn't gotten bigger on MTGO, at least a little bit, because it's a good budget alternative to what's going on in Modern and Legacy and the prices that are going on, where in most of those formats, either A, like Legacy, practically unplayable, B modern is extremely expensive. And if you do a uh, borrowing service, you actually can't even get full decks anymore because of the price of some of these cards pricing you out of them. Yeah, the moto economy is kind of the moto economy is yeah, it's still better than arena, but like I mean everything is. So <laughs> at least moto works, I think. Yeah, at least yeah, and at least moto works. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's all those things. The other thing about this, um I am a little unsure. I think these cards are powerful and they're good. I think this land is good. I'm unsure if there's an actual vampire deck in standard with a, there being enough cards for it to be, you know, I understand you might have an aggro deck that's good enough where it has the vampire stuff. I'll believe it a little more when I see it. I'm not saying, Oh, you can't do it. I'm saying I'd be a little more. I'm a, I'm waiting for this is what I'm thinking. Do, do, do you know what card is a vampire that you might not realize? What's that? Immersturm predator. It's a, it's a vampire dragon. Yeah. I like it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. There we go. So like now we got some top end that has some some staying power and it's a very good card. Um, the thing I worry about is a the mana being good enough to be aggressive enough in the formats, in, in especially in standard. I think standard is the problem. Like we talked about this, the the mana, not great, not the worst I've ever seen. You know, I've seen two color. I've seen two color aggro decks from like two thousand and two or whatever, and it's like you can't cast a spell. Uh, do, do you remember Blue Green Madness? When, yeah, when, you, like, was it Ken Ho who played one tarnished Citadel? Yeah, it's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's when you're. That's when you're like, I got to scrape the barrel. You yeah, know, there were literally no. There were no dual lands for for block constructed oh, in, oh, in standard. Were, you had, you oh, had okay. in standard. You had Yava Maya Coast. And then we got the dual lands in Kamigawa that, like, if you tapped them for a color, they like didn't untap yeah. during your next and, turn. And that so, was like, only were, that was only friendly colors. Yeah, that was they were. It was it was yeah. a dark day. And, it and was standard, a really really the, dark day. The standard mana base was like eight, like eighteen, I think nineteen basics and four. It's probably eighteen basics. People didn't play enough lands. I think I think it was ten eight, like ten forest eight island for you of my coast. It looked like a limited deck and hope. Yeah, and yeah. hope and pray. All right. So, uh, what number was that for you? That was number four. So we're on to mine number three. Um, anyone who knows me, especially the way that I draft and the decks that I like and what kind of magic I like, you are not going to be surprised by this card coming in at number three. Um, I'm a big fan of this card. So is Ross. I think it's on your list too. So I hope it's number three as well. Uh, this is Wandering Mind. Is this your number three? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, so Wandering Mind for everybody at home. Uh, one blue red, two one flying horror. Uh, not really a relevant creature type, but it does come up in Pioneer and Modern, just saying. You know, if you wanted to flip your thing in the ice, 
this this thing does stay in play, which I think in some ways you'd almost rather it didn't. But anyway, uh, when it enters the battlefield, you get to look at the top six cards of your library. And you can reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them and put them into your hand. You put the rest in the bottom in any random order. Not only is this like Augur of Bolas on steroids, it's actually better in a lot of ways too because it says non-creature, non-land. So you can get enchantments, you can get planeswalkers, you can get, you know, an artifact. Like you can get a lot of things here, right? You know, I'm thinking of the list and it's, you're going to have decks where this is going to be really hard to miss. Like you're going to have to try really hard to miss with this card. The yeah, body six, six is a lot of cards. Yeah, six is a lot. You know, obviously you're going to run into the collect a company thing, right? Where you six and you're like, I got one really bad one or I got zero. And, you know, we've seen it on camera. We're like, oh, oh God, you know, like kind of thing. But the body, quote unquote relevant, you know, it's, it's a two one flyer. I guess it could attack some planeswalkers or it can trade with an Arclight Phoenix, you know, and, and I think it's a thing you're going to see happening possibly in some formats. But when I look at standard and I look at like some of the things that's going on, this just says draw a card on it, and the cards that you draw are all really good. You know, you're not you're not drawing lands, right? You're not drawing like non-good cards. You're drawing something that's gonna be very important to your deck. And I think this is a card that, especially with the way that the format is moving, you know, that being a little more, you know, we can actually play some turns out and stuff, you know, like that. This is a card that I think is gonna be very impactful. Uh I, I agree. Obviously, I have it in the same spot on my list. And, you know, the obvious home for this is, you know, a, a general like, is it mid range or control deck? I could see playing this in, um, in, in is it Epiphany or is it Dragons? I could see, you know, uh, see it in a sort of low to the ground spell heavy deck, but I can also see it in a team or mid range deck that makes sure you turn for your chariot as often as possible. You know, you have some Ren and Sevens at the top of your curve too, and, and you know, maybe you're an Epiphany deck as well. I don't know. But the curving this card into Chariot seems really cool to me. In Modern, I've seen already seen Aspiring Spike build a deck where he curves this into Fires of Invention, which is something somebody in our chat mentioned when when you know Wandering Mind was previewed uh, on Versus Live. So, uh, you know, so that to me this is a card that actually has potential outside of Standard. I had, you know, and beyond just being a good card, you know, you can, it's obviously cool to blink with Ephemerate. Uh, it's cool to, uh, you know, blink with Yorian in, in a deck like that. Um, and just a, a powerful effect that that idea of having this three drop that sets me up to find my really powerful four mana play, whether it's uh, Zika's Chariot or uh, Fire Zone Invention or even Wilderness Reclamation. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the card, those kind of cards that when you have them on turn four, the games are a lot different than when you don't. So Wandering Mind is going to add a lot of extra consistency to your deck as a result. So, um, you know, the fact that it has so many applications beyond just being a generic value card uh, and synergizes with so many other powerful cards that are seeing play across multiple formats made this a pretty slam dunk to put high on my list. Yeah. Let's talk about this in all the classical matchups, right? Like you mentioned mid-range. So like in the mid-range mirror, this card is one of the cards that way overperforms, right? It's a it's a relevant creature in the fact that like it's a 2-1 flyer that can get some damage in, but also comes attached with a card that generally is going to be higher than it's you know if we took it out of baseball reference it's got a it's got a positive war you know what i mean it's going to have a above average card attached to it you know you're not just drawing a card off the top of your deck in the aggro matchup especially if you're playing a red deck you're probably going to be like interacting in turn one or two with one of their creatures they're going to play this card it's either going to chump block or trade with something 
but it's going to come attached with it another piece of removal, right? Or another card that gets you ahead, you know, or it finds you your planeswalker, right? You know, it finds you some card that's really good in the matchup, something that's important, right? In the control matchup, this is a must counter. Like they, they have to stop this card because if you play it and they kill it, they're, they're down on cards now. If they play it and they don't kill it, you're up on cards and you're attacking their life total now. And you can play it on turn three where a lot of times they can't just punish you on turn four too hard. You know, there's no like four mana slam kill you card in the control matchup stuff now. So I see this card possibly being an all-star if it, you know, if the decks can fit it in well. Uh, yeah, uh, I just agree completely, and it it's uh, it's it sort of straddles the line between a plug and play card and a build around card because it it enables I think a lot of build arounds, um, and uh, so it, it fits into that style of deck, more synergy driven decks, but it's also just a value card. And when you get to play both sides of the coin, that's a recipe for mm. success. Absolutely. Um, my number two. Uh, I have to guess, I think this is also your number two, and I think you and I might have the number same number one with the way that this is going. Uh, my number two is Cemetery Prowler. Uh, yep, my number two is also nice. Cemetery Prowler. All right, we could have we maybe talked about this beforehand and maybe mixed up some stuff, but whatever. This it just makes it a lot smoother. So everybody at home, Cemetery Prowler. One green green for a 3-4 wolf. Relevant creature type. Just, just saying, there are a few things out there. Um, it has Vigilance. Whenever Cemetery Prowler enters the battlefield or attacks, exile a card from a graveyard. Spells you cast cost one less to cast for each card type they share with a card exiled from Cemetery Prowler. This is all very, very good, right? Um, it also, here's the other big thing. This is plug and play, like you've been saying the whole time. This immediately has a home in standard while also possibly fitting into other decks. The fact that it's a very relevant body, it's a 3-4 Vigilance creature for one green-green, right? That's right at good enough for standard, you know? It's going to it's gonna block uh, the 3-3s for two out of mono-green really well. Because, um, like, that's the thing, is I'm worried about being outclassed in the mono-green mirror, you know, because the ability might not be super relevant, honestly. And, in fact, this is probably a card you don't want in the mirror, but in game one, if this is in your, if this is in your deck, you know, it has, it has some spots, right? It's good enough against some of the other decks if you hit a relevant card out of the graveyard. Against the aggro decks, it's a 3-4 three, for 3 that's going to, hey, slow down kind of thing. And if you remove a creature from their graveyard, they need to be worried about the fact that you might just cast a 5-drop next turn. You know, you might cast something very, very soon and above, you know, above yeah. where it should or, be. Or right? just double spell. Or just double spell, yeah, 2-2 two, two, two drops, you know, two, a 3-drop and a 2-drop, you know, kind of thing. Because it's each one, right? So you might even be able to freaking triple spell if you yeah. have a bunch of, like, some stupid stuff, you know? You can do all kinds of great stuff with this. And then you can't undersell enough, if it's relevant, that, you know, it, it removes a card from the graveyard when it comes into play and when it attacks. Like, if we had a few more of these cards in standard just like this, like, can you imagine what we could have done in the in the Uro format with, like, this creature, with these five creatures that all do this? We could have yeah. done some stupid shit, you know, and stuff. It would have been great. It might have made that card, you know, keepable. Manageable. Yeah. Yeah. And stuff. So, um... Altogether, some of its parts just, you know, I think this card will get played, possibly very relevant in the fact that it might drastically change a few things in standard and, and some other formats as well. Like, I, I can see this getting played in some other formats, too. 
yeah, I, I agree. You know, solid stats. It plays offense and defense. It disrupts the opponent if they're using the graveyard at all, and it provides mana for you. You know, that rebate that you're getting, so you're able to curve out really effectively as an aggressive deck or keep up with an opposing aggressive deck if you're a mid-range deck means that this card, it does so many things that you're right. It's That makes it a plug-and-play because it just fits into so many different kinds of decks. But like uh, Wandering Mind, it can also help enable synergy-driven decks. That cost reduction is usually so- is something that you salivate for if you're a synergy deck and you're trying to assemble two or three different pieces and you're creature-heavy, or you're even if you're just spell-heavy. Like, this is a card that could just exile an instant and, and give you a Goblin Electromancer somehow. I don't know. Th- that probably won't work in green, but, um, you know, maybe you can make the mana work in some sort of format. Um, you know, one of the one of the my favorite decks from this preview season uh, on Versus Live was a Golgari, you know, graveyard deck playing things like Willow Geist and Death Bonnet Sprout and uh, Skyclave Shade and you know milling my myself a lot. But I also played Cemetery Prowler, and it just made it Cemetery Prowler. While it looked a little weird in the deck, it ended up being the best card because it made mm-hmm. it made everything run a lot more smoothly. It made it so much. It actually. The big thing is it made Skyclave Shade so much better. That card has kind of underperformed a little bit, but when it costs one mana, it's ridiculously good. <laughs> like it's so much easier to find one spare mana lying around on a turn than it is to find two. And oftentimes, like you know, it's especially that much easier when your spells cost one less for the most part. So uh, I think this is another card that can just fit into such a wide array of decks, and it's a creature with really solid stats. And the most underrated part to me is the vigilance. So it's going to play offense and defense. Yep. This is a card that aggro decks are going to hate to play against. Even if you're not one that uses the graveyard, it's a difficult body to get through. If you can't answer it immediately, the the battlefield is going to slip away from you really, really quickly because of that cost reduction. So I think it's at its best against opposing aggressive decks. Um, although it's a little awkward in the mono green mirror just because of the sizing. You know, it being a 3-4 against a lot of 4-4s and 5-5s. Um, but th- that's honestly not that big of a deal if you're going to be able to get up to your high end that much faster. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I, th- I think another one of those cards, when you look at it, you're just like, I-, I like every line. It keeps adding one, like nothing that you're going to use the whole Buffalo of this card, right? Like all, every piece of it's going to use. It just seems great. So uh, big fan. The more we talk about it at first, I was a little, a little bit lower on it than most people, but you know, just more and more I thought about it. I was like, yeah, this card's going to be pretty good. And, like, if there were going to be some kind of graveyard shenanigans in the set, this would slow it down. But I do like that all the cards of these, all the protectors, I mean, sorry, all the cemetery cards, that they're not just graveyard hate cards, right? Like, they get something attached to them. Like, you know, the red one deals two damage. The black one can kill a creature. The blue one becomes, like, for some reason, card advantage. And then, you know, the white one makes one ones or whatever, you know, kind of thing. So they do something other than... You know, hey, we have this graveyard hate thing attached to them, but if that's not what's going on or what's important, the card you're not getting too little for your investment. You know, you're getting something a little extra. Yeah. Um, so it has a high floor. Right. Exactly. So our number one, and when I say our number one, I'm assuming you have the same number one as me. The card that I think is utterly fucked up. I hate it. I hate the fact that it's just a rare because I've already run into it multiple times. Hold, hold in, on. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, we got, we right, got to do overrated, right, right. Underrated first. I apologize. I'm I'm moving really, really, really fast here. Um. Oh, before we do that, uh, th- th- there was something I was supposed to say before we even get into the top eight, so I'll just insert it here. There's a card that's not on my list, and I wasn't going to include it on my list even if I thought it should be, and that's Averbrook Caretaker, because fuck that card. 
Um, that card's made for no one. Yeah, no one's going to have fun with that card. I don't think the card is, is good enough for Constructed, but I agree that it is absolutely heinous for Limited. The play pattern is it's terrible. This is a card that we designed. that Todd mentioned last week. Uh, yeah. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For, for this exact reason. It's just such a heinous Limited card. At least it's a Mythic. Sometimes they print these heinous cards at Rare, and you're just like, why? Oh, yeah. Why did you do it, this to me? There was a tweet when it, got, uh, when it got spoiled, and I should have taken a picture of it so I could give the person credit for it. But someone tweeted it, and they're like, who is this card for? Like, who's having fun with this card? Like, <laughs> the person against it definitely is not having fun. And then when I – like, because here's the thing. I'm going to first pick this if it's in my pack, right? And then when I win, I'm going to feel dirty afterwards. I'm going to need a shower. Like, it's not going to be fun. I'm not going to enjoy it. You know, it's, what's the saying? It's like, this will not be this will not be uh, enjoyable yeah, for you. This will not be fast. Yeah, this will yeah. not be quick or whatever, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. This it's will like, not be over quickly. You will not enjoy yeah. this. You will not something. enjoy this. Like, maybe it will be over quickly. Those fucking concede or whatever, yeah. but – but uh, just fuck that card and fuck our PG rating. But um, that we never really had anyway. All right, what do you want to do? Do you want to do over overrated or underrated? Uh, uh, let's do overrated. All right, uh, my overrated is kind of a cop out, but I think we'll like yeah, this. You always have a cop out in the section, Dan. Yeah, so yeah. no surprises here. Um, the set is the set as a whole. My overrated because yeah. um, I heard a lot of people. And sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm just a little surprised by that, but go on. Well, it's not that I don't think the set's good. Or that I don't think it's fun. It's just a lot of stuff that I saw on Twitter, at least the selectiveness that I saw of Twitter, is uh, this set's busted. It's so good. Uh, I saw some comparisons to, what was the name of the set? Um, with Throne? The ad- adventures. Yeah, Throne. They're like, and I saw someone uh, Someone made the comment. It's not me calling people out directly. But someone made the comment along the lines of, uh, yeah, no wonder there were no good cards in the first Nistrat set. They saved them all for this one kind of <laughs> thing. You know, And it's part of people just being excited for new cards, right? I think this is one of the most fairly balanced and made magic sets I've seen in a while, and I like that. So I, I think the set, like, it's not me saying the set's not good. It's me just being like, chill, the set's just good, like, yeah. overall. I, I agree. I think the set is good. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the sort of overreactions that you've seen, I guess, but I agree. That, it's like, probably just my this, timeline. The set is just not, it's not busted. It's just good. It, it must have, I saw a whole, I must have saw multiple people saying the same thing, and it, like, stuck with me, and it was only that little bit, but... And I'm like, let's not, you know, poo-poo Midnight Hunt. Like, you know, I'm just scrolling down this. I see, you know, Lear, standard staple. Moonville Region has seen some play. Ren 7, good card. Smoldering Egg. The Meat Hook Massacre. Malevolent Hermit. Fateful Absence. Memory Deluge. You know, Reckless yeah, Stormseeker. Yeah, I mean, people Seeker. like to be hyperbolic. Yeah. yeah. Adeline. Uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of good cards from uh, Brutal Cathar. A lot of good cards from this set. So, um, you know, honestly, to me, the, like, the sets are, are pretty comparable. I think the Crimson Vow might be a little bit deeper. I also think you'll see more Innistrad Midnight Hunt cards now that Innistrad Crimson Vow is out because they do overlap with their synergies. You know, there's the obvious tribal stuff. Uh, you know, there's there you know, as much as one set was more werewolf focused and the other set more vampire focused. There's you know spirits, humans, werewolves, vampires, and zombies throughout. Um, so I, I will say I, I think that the Planeswalkers from this. Uh, in a strut set are more powerful than the two from the previous set both teferi and arlen sort of fell flat so uh you know maybe that's an edge for in crimson vow but overall i i honestly think they're they're pretty comparable mm-hmm. absolutely um so what are we up to now we're at my overrated card and and that is and that is overcharged amalgam so this is a two blue blue 
uh, like zombie horror. I so don't people, I'm, I'm looking it up right now, but people at home can't see that I'm frowning right now because this card is totally my shit. <laughs> and like everything that I like in a magic card, uh, I've got it pulled up. I'm going to read it for everybody. Uh, two blue, blue, zombie horror, three, three, flash, flying, exploit. Uh, when it exploits a creature, counter target spell, activated ability, or triggered ability. I want this card to be good so bad, Ross. Yeah. The the problem is the the type of deck that this card would be good in doesn't really exist. It's a card that needs you to have a good number of creatures so that you can exploit and creatures you want to sacrifice. But it's also a a flash threat which generally play better when with instants and other flash cards so that you can play that kind of game. And there's not really a lot of flash creatures that are good to be sacrificing to exploit. It's like maybe you can find the right balance between playing some cheap creatures like Shambling Gas and iTwitch and things like that, Jadar, and then have Overcharge Amalgam in your deck. But you can't really play that many other exploit creatures because they're mostly like three and four mana sorcery speed creatures that aren't going to play that well with Overcharged Amalgam. So I just don't really see the deck where this card is good. This this is a card that... The, it is worse than the sum of its parts. Like all of its abilities are good. It's a flash. It has flying. Four and a three three is a reasonable body. Uh, you know, disallow as an exploit trigger is pretty cool, uh, and that's a pretty good card. But like, where does it fit? And how? Like, what what does the deck look like that maximizes this card? And I think when you answer that question, you come to the realization that it's a bad deck. It is a deck that is being pulled in two different directions. And unless there are very specific and unique tools that exist to allow you to, uh, you know, thread the needle between those two different uh, directions and find that that balance, and I don't think those tools exist in really any format, uh, then this card is unfortunately just going to sit on the sidelines. So we're to my underrated card, right? Yes. And this is I just have a card, Ross. Nothing, nothing special or weird. Thank or God. Are you are you happy? Are you, are you proud of me? Okay, thanks. Dad. I'm not proud of you, um, but I'm happy. Just like my normal dad. Anyway, uh, <laughs> my underrated card is uh, Storm Chaser Drake. And for everyone who has, might not know this one, uh, <clears throat> I'm not just talking about limited because it's probably the best limited card in the set so far that I've been playing with. I love it so much. Uh, it's a one and a blue for a two one flying Drake, and it says whenever it becomes the target of a spell you control, so the spell doesn't have to resolve. Whenever it becomes targeted. By spell you control, draw a card. I think this card has a chance to be played in Standard, in Pioneer, you know, all the formats like that that have like the cool little Voltron-y type decks. You know, this is this is how the this is how the Hexproof creatures really should be. You know, and you know, I think of like you know the blue white. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The the blue white like heroic decks of the past, where you could maybe make it three colors with some other stuff. But I think this card is very very good. If it finds a home, it will be very good in those homes. Obviously, this card will straight up just kill people, and you'll draw a million cards while doing it. So it's kind of fun. Like you'll never run out of gas, you know, with a card like this. So the fact that it's a two-one, a little prohibitive, but it does have evasion built in with flying, so you don't have to worry about those kind of cards maybe attached to it as well. It just matters if it finds a home and stuff like that. That's the biggest problem for me. But this is the kind of card that um, I can see where if someone plays it, it's a kill on sight card like you have to kill this now kind of thing 
I, I think if a deck, a sort of prowess or heroic style deck emerges, this is going to be a big part of it. I think it's a really good card for a deck of that style. Um, so I, I think that's a, it's a good choice. And I hope a deck like that materializes. I like playing those decks, and this is, it's a really good card in those decks. You know, they always need a lot of card advantage. You need to keep the gas flowing. Sometimes, like you fall a little bit short. This is a card that really ensures that you're going to keep putting pressure on your opponent. You're going to keep having more and more stuff to do. Uh, you know, throughout the entire game, really, the card is it's really strong. And my underrated card is Voldaren Epicure. This is red for a one-one vampire. When it enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to each opponent, and you create a blood token. Very easy card to overlook. You know, just cheap common. Doesn't jump out of the page with exactly what it does, but it does a lot of different little things. You really know? good role player. Yeah, it, it's already affected. Like, just on turn one, it's like a one-mana, one-one haste with a little upside, which, you know, reminds me of Hall Monitor, which is all play in Red Decks over the summer. I would say in that role, it's certainly worse than Hall Monitor, but Blood Tokens, there's a lot of synergies to do, you know, with those, with vampires. You can sacrifice the Blood Token to uh, Deadly Dispute. You know, if you're doing more of a sacrifice theme, it creates two permanents for one mana. You know, if you're just a deck that cares about permanents, uh, you can do things with it. Uh, a deck that cares about artifacts, it creates an artifact on turn one. Um, so there, there's just a lot of synergies to exploit there. But when it comes to just the vampire tribe, which I've noted that I'm somewhat high on, you know, dealing damage pre-combat can help trigger your Florian, even if you can't don't have a battlefield to attack and effectively draw a card. It can make sure that you can cast Vampire Socialite on turn before combat. You know, I, I would love the idea of having a turn three of Epicure Socialite, and you know, after if you're really curving out, say you have Pit Fighter on one, you know, some sort of two drop on turn two. Let's say the two one flyer that makes a blood token whenever a creature you control dies. And then you have these three, these two on turn three. Suddenly you have a battlefield of what, uh, three, six, eight, ten power, and you're attacking for five. And you have this blood token that could potentially dig you towards more gas if you need it, um, you know, or start getting towards transforming the two one flyer. So there's a lot of really like that. That's a pretty ideal curve out. Obviously, that's not going to happen that often, but there are definitely advantages to having some amount of direct damage when so much of the vampire theme is built around having dealt your opponent some amount of damage and getting an effect out of it being able to get those effects pre-combat when they're not really designed to do that they're generally designed to be post-combat uh benefits uh can really sort of flip the script and elevate those effects into something a lot more powerful than intended so uh, i this is a you know a very it's a cheap card which my underrated card almost always is they're almost always one and two mana commons that just do a lot of little things to help make synergy driven decks work and th this is just the latest example of that absolutely absolutely love the, that card it's definitely one of the ones that i looked at i'm like this is on my like must must watch list you know kind of thing so all right so we're gonna move into our number one card uh kind of harkening back to that i hate this card I, I hate the fact that it's a it's a rare. I keep running into it in limited and conceding immediately. But this is a card that we're definitely going to see in standard, especially if a control deck is relevant. And this will be the card that you see in it. It's a quote-unquote card-like that we get every like set or other set. And they always try to make something like this. And this is one of the better ones they've made in a while. This is Holebreaker Horror. For 5 blue-blue, you get a 7-8 with Flash. Uh, it can't be countered. And whenever you cast a spell, you get to choose up to one of these two abilities. Return target spell you don't control to its owner's hand. So it, like, remands something. Or 
return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. So you get to bounce something, including itself, so it can also, you know, protect itself. So it's like unsubstantiate. I hate this card, Ross. Yeah, it's, um, it is an excellent finisher. Um, you know, if you untap with it, I know in limited, it's basically game. In I've conceded to it immediately every time it's been cast. In constructed, it's basically game two. I've had Corey on tap with this card on versus exactly once, and it was just comical. Like anything I tried to do, it's like yeah, you can't do anything. Like the yeah. you know the game went on for two more turns. I let him have his fun, uh, and you know show the audience just how dominant th- this ability is. But you, know, you get to be the uh, the you get to be the punching bag. Yeah, um, you know th- this card. I- I'm annoyed that this card was previewed like two days after. Actually, I think it was the day after I submitted a cool mono blue deck. Uh, it was like a mono blue snow deck with consuming tide and trying to take advantage of that with some other cheap creatures and like Hallbreaker horror would have been a perfect end game for it. Um, and I would have gotten, to, I would have loved to play with the, this card in that deck. Um, but you know, that's just sometimes what happens on versus during preview season, but it's a ridiculously powerful control finisher. And, you know, I, we've seen a lot of hype from it already over, you know, since the set has been released online, I've been seeing a lot of hype for this card and I'm not surprised I what I hadn't realized uh, is that I also think this card is really really good with Wilderness Reclamation. Oh God, come on, can we not? <laughs> like, like really really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just over this card. Uh, not that in, that in every way tells you what you need to know. What I think about, it. I think it's very very good. This is Shaheen Sarani's like love letter. You know, this is Wizards being like, here you go, Shaheen. It's been a while since you've gotten something. Um, I hope all my control players have this in their opening hand and only draw six lands. <laughs> this is the kind of card that you could actually like build a ramp deck around. We haven't really had a finisher this powerful that you could actively just ramp into it and expect it to dominate the battlefield with just how powerful the other threats are. Th- this one might do it. Oh, absolutely. The, I think this card is very, very good. The only thing that gives me hope is divide by zero, which is very, oh, very good God. against it. Are, are the savior we've needed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if divide by zero didn't need to get it, you know, if it needed to get any, any better, better, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it just completely dominates the battlefield. I think you're, you might see more considers as a result of, of this card being oh, around, uh, you know, just with fading hope where now you're paying one mana to bounce two things, uh, you know, any, 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 any one mana spell. So you can cast this on eight and protect it from a removal spell is going to be really important. Um, but, uh, it, it's, this is, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to you know say exactly why. You know, obviously, like it reads pretty powerful, but it's a seven mana card. You expect seven mana cards to be really powerful, but just like you gotta just play just play just, just, just play with her against it once, and like just see how much it dominates the battlefield. Or if, look, if you played Legacy back in the day when Reanimator's a thing, like just r- remember how ridiculous Tidespout Tyrant was. And this is like you know this one can't bounce all their lands, but the fact that they also just like can't resolve spells at a certain point, it. it you know that's a wash basically <laughs> so you don't think this card is good right challenge it challenge it to a game of magic it makes sure your whole crew is there to see it <laughs> and watch it you just might get schooled you know you, you just might get you just might get beat in ways you didn't know that you were possible and then afterwards it'll take you inside and make you pancakes it'll do that yeah and like like not to mention like the play patterns like can you imagine this with like flashback spells too like you're like all the extra value you're getting out of your own graveyard not to mention that it it triggers when you cast the spell right so whenever you cast the spell so like i could see myself casting a spell and then 
to trigger it to like bounce something and then bouncing my own spell with like with a consider that has like flashback just so I can keep it going like over and over again. You know, just because I wanted the effect, I don't need the spell to resolve yet. So then I can just cast it again. So this is like you said, I love the idea of leaving it until you have eight mana where like you can have consider, you know, this, it's literally the same thing. I was like, I'm going to play for consider this card because it's going to be the, it's going to be the morphling tax or uh, the aetherling tax where like you have to play it, but you also have to have mana up when you play it. I mean, there's some games where you're just going to slam it and like untap or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, if your opponent taps out, yeah. uh, like, they make screw, it easy for you. Screw this card. Yeah. It, oh, is this a good card to take extra turns with too? It, explain. Do you want to, is it, do you want to do that? No. <laughs> no. It's, it's, it's that, that's the play patterns along with like Averbrook caretaker. I, I don't, yeah. the, the only thing that, uh, the only thing that gives me some hope is that it doesn't have flying. So like if I'm a, like a mono white deck, I can attack with a bunch of flyers into it at least, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's mono, mono green. You're just like, okay, it's this ridiculous seven, eight that like also just, you know, ensures that I can't possibly, you know, attack. Like it's also going to FTK something, you know, the, the, the turn six, uh, unexpected windfall gal- galvanic iteration turns now are even more threatening yep. beca- because they're getting up to what well, that, that's generating four treasures. So they're at 10 mana, a land drop next turn. They're at 11 mana. They cast this with four mana up and uh, you know, the, the game is just over. Yep. Good luck. Um, exactly. Now I'm going to go ahead and move us on to the mailbag submission section and then probably end the show from there because I don't know how much longer I can talk. Yeah. We've also gone pretty long. So let, let's, yeah. let's do some mailbags. Now, there was a mailbag, and I really like this question. It's a conversation that came up recently on Twitter. Uh, this is from Fuzzy Dan. He says, do you see Watsy considering banning the companion man- uh, mechanic? Not banning the cards themselves, but adjusting formats to non- no longer allow you to reveal the cards as companions. This is a very interesting thing. You know, we've only technically got really two companions that are playable, right? I get Gigantha or whatever gets played. Oh, right? Obash get- a little bit too. And I- Yeah, sure. Those don't K- count. Kahira. Those don't count yeah. when you're considering... Kira and Gigantha are yeah. are not companions. They're acquaintances. Those don't count when you're considering the other two, and nothing compares to uh, yeah. Luris. Hobosh right. is the one that's kind of balanced. Like, <laughs> yeah. I want to see one of two things happen with them. Um, I, I, I think I'm kind of down with just getting rid of them. I, I, I don't like it overall. I don't like the absurd rate of decks that use them. You know, it, it seems like a you just kind of have to do this kind of thing, and you're already rewarded for playing all the best cheap cards anyway in that format. Why why give you Luris as well? That or just print more of them so everybody gets one if they wanted. But I think that leads to even more problems in the future. Yeah, so I, I think I it was a cool experiment. It didn't even work in standard. So like, I, I think it's just here's the thing. Um, a few months ago. A new set came out in Flesh and Blood called Tales of Aria, right? So they print this new set. And one of the decks was, uh, b- before that set, one of the decks from one of, whatever, this in the in the standard format, their standard format, their constructive format, was too good. And they had to ban a card from it, right? But they printed a card in Tales of Aria that was going to go into that deck, right? And then I think a week before the set came out, they banned the card. And it's in packs in the new set. And they were like, we messed up. They literally said that we messed up. We're sorry. This card's too good. And while I thought it was awful to have to do that, right? Because this is one of like the chase super rare cards in the set and you could get it 
um they're like it's an equipment piece and their equipment in that game you can get like different foilings of it, it makes them really expensive and cool right you know they look really sweet and stuff and you can open that in the packs right and like the card's just not even legal in classic constructed which is weird i like a company that is willing to say we made a mistake we're sorry like it's for the good of the game that we're doing this and i think at some point when you look overall of what companions are doing the numbers they're putting up and stuff uh maybe we should start at least having the conversation and watching it be like look it was a cool thing you know what is it lutri was the kind of card that's like okay you know these other cards you know uh Kohira, these cards are okay. Umori. We made it, yeah, we might have made a mistake or two on some of these other ones. You know, they might have been a little too good. And yeah. so just admit your mistake, you know, cut your losses, and it's fine. It's it's They've had them for over a year, and no one is, look, here's the thing. No one has, like, gone out and spent, you know, thousands of dollars on these companions. Like, yeah, their deck might not be, quote-unquote, playable anymore, but the cards in the deck are still really, like, when you look at, like, the Jundlerus deck, it's like, those cards are still good. Right, you're still gonna keep. They're still gonna keep their value. It's not like it's gonna just destroy people's collections. So, I think, I think their time has come and gone. In my personal opinion, yeah, I would like to get rid of Luris and Yorian as well. To be honest, I think that's really annoying. I think that there are so many more interesting deck building decisions that could be made if we didn't have to constantly limit ourselves to one and two drops to make Luris our just, companion. You're just giving them an you eighth know, card too. It, like it, I just hate it. It was an interesting exercise in deck building for like a month or two and it's no longer interesting it is now a net negative uh you know on the overall uh you know what i would say on the metric what percentage of cards that are technically legal in the format are operation or like de facto you know uh, legal ban, yeah, they're like yeah. What well, cards get unbanned and banned because of this card? Yeah, and it's it's a large margin at this point. I also think it is made like cards that are resilient to spot removal worse because Lyrus is we we've learned that Lyrus is at its best when you play it with just efficient good things because Lyrus is the card that gives you resilience to, to removal. So you don't really need to play Lyrus with like Bloodgast. Right, Bloodgast already has it built in. Lurus wants to be played with Tarmogoyf and Goblin Guide, cards that say "Kill me now or you are dead," and um, and so it has also made like that section of the metagame you know less playable. It has made you know aggressive decks that can't easily splash white or black much worse, or it has forced decks to make their mana base really awkward in order to do so. Uh, you know, Lurus is the main offender here since they've rotated out of standard. Um, Yorian still sees you know significant play in Modern and in Pioneer, and is also just really annoying. I fucking hate shuffling eighty card decks. Um, so yeah, you know personally, I would say I want them gone, but I don't expect them to be gone anytime soon. Absolutely, um, <clears throat> I think it's a really good spot to uh, end the show. Really great question. I'm I'm sorry, I just I I don't think I can really continue. I mean, we've gone for almost yeah. two hours. That that you are you not entertained? Yeah. Are you not entertained? <laughs> I actually need to rewatch that movie. It's been a long time. They're making the second one sometime soon, apparently. But uh, which is another conversation in and of itself. Make sure you check out our sponsor. Uh, <clears throat> that's Bear Stern Man, man with two ends, uh, for all of your uh, needs when it comes to anything you know, shaving related, soap related, lots of other cool stuff on there as well. We're really, really close to the holidays. In fact, I've got a birthday in like eight days if anyone wants to send me anything i got i got a wish list on there as well but uh if you just want to send me something else it's uh 
you know, tanandgrace at gmail.com is the uh, the PayPal if you want to get a little a little frisky this this holiday season and you know give me a little something maybe help me uh, help me with uh, throat vocal cord replacement surgery that I'm gonna probably need here sometime soon and um, but yeah make sure you check out barristerandman.com lots of really cool stuff on there again that's man of two ends and use the code MTG rants at checkout for fifteen percent off Ross if people wanted to hear more or see more of you where would they go first place and best place is my Twitter account I am at Ross Hunnids. H-U-N-N-E-D-S. That is, you know, just the best place to keep uh, tabs on all of my content and magic, uh, uh, you know, things that whatever I'm doing magic-wise. Also a good place to ask me questions. You know, my DMs are open, and I try to get back to people as often as possible. Um, Then there is my written content for Star City Games. My articles go up on Tuesdays. This week's was actually about Felstinger, a card that appears in both of our top eight lists. So if you want to know how to maximize exploit uh, and Felstinger in particular, that'll be a good article for you. A lot of good deck lists there. Um, And then there is uh, Versus Live, the web show I host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. We're on... Uh, the Star City Games Twitch channel Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Corey is actually going to be out of town for one episode next week. So next Thursday's show is going to be me and Todd Anderson. So if you're a fan of Todd being on the show, you can catch him on Thursday, but it'll be me and Corey on Tuesday this coming week. Um, then, you didn't get enough of Todd last week on the show. Yeah, you know, we... Uh, we play, you know, whatever's relevant for Tournament Magic next week. We, we've got a standard show on Tuesday. We're going to be playing Modern, getting back into Modern on Thursday to sort of preview the event in Vegas that is coming up, which is why Corey's not going to be there. He's actually going to be playing in that tournament and flying out a little early for it. Um, and, and we take questions live from the audience. Have a great time. So I encourage you to catch us live if you can. Uh, but if you can't, the VODs are available on the Star City Games YouTube channel, and they go up usually a day later. Uh, so check, you know, towards the end of the day. Uh, on Wednesday and Friday for those. And then finally my stream. I know I'm well behind when I what I said I was going to do, uh, but I I'm, I'm promise you it'll, it's coming back eventually. Uh, so if you want to throw me a follow there and get notified when I do come back to streaming, I am Ross underscore Miriam on Twitch, and I appreciate any and all support across all of or any of those platforms. Tannen, if you want to see more of your rants about but probably less baseball now. I don't even know what you're going to rant about, but you'll you'll find there's, something. There's plenty of baseball going on in this offseason, buddy. They're doing a new CBA. It's going to be bad. Oh, we shit. might be getting another strike. Oh. But uh, it's it's bad. It's okay. This is the worst I've ever seen them at each other's throats. So, so um, if we want to get more rants uh, about baseball, sure. where, where might we find them? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at TheTannonGrace. And on Twitch, I'm just uh, TannonGrace. I did actually go live the other day for a little while. I didn't speak the entire the entire one, but maybe I'll speak on the ones on this. I am drafting the set quite a bit, so we'll see how long that lasts. You know, I'll go through my up and downs, whether I like a set or not. I'm a tiny bit bored with this one, but it's just mostly because I haven't been able to, I've had to draft the same deck like two or three times in a row, and that makes me bored very quickly because that's just what's been open. So, um, but the set is really cool. I've been drafting a little bit, and then if I like it, I'll play some standard and stuff on there as well, even though I absolutely hate Arena. So if you want to see some self-loathing, going on on stream there there you go you can hear me just Ooh, complain I'm about in, it i'm in you yeah, i know me. you love it yeah i know you love it and then um <clears throat> so you can find this up there make sure that you check out um all the those things for our actual cast as well and then if you remember the patreon don't forget to look in that section 
of our Discord. We're also be posting some stuff for you guys and girls uh, for that sometime real soon. So we love each and every one of you. We appreciate you. Have a good holidays as it comes up. We'll try to get as many episodes as we can until the end of the year. Um, you know, we might have to break that up for like a week or two with some traveling and stuff. We'll see what happens. Um, I'm not traveling this year as far as I know. Are you, Ross? I mean, I don't know. It'll just depend on what tournaments pop up. At this point, I think it, things are still very much up in the air. Yeah. So we'll see what's going on. So just week to week, we'll try to keep you up. And uh, if we can, we'll get an extra episode in sometime soon. Maybe just like an hour episode of just overrated, underrated to catch up and maybe do some fun stuff on there as well. Because I know we haven't been as uh, regular as I'd like. But anyway, oh, you, thanks for listening. You're talking about traveling just for the holidays. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I, I'll yeah. Be, I'm going back home for a week. I haven't so booked. We can, we'll figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we can figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, everybody at home, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.